There is nothing new under the sun. But under the small green fourth moon of Yavin, there is quite a different story. <laughs> Director George Lucas and 20th Century Fox present Star Wars. Luke Skywalker is on a daring mission to rescue a beautiful princess, and all he needs is a little help from his friends. Han Solo, space pirate, and Chewie, his giant Wookiee, C-3PO, human relations cyborg, and his counterpart R2-D2, and the mysterious Jedi Knight. Never before in the history of movies has so much time and technology been spent just for fun. Star Wars. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Buenos dias, señor. Hola. Hola, buenos tardes. Uh, ¿Qué pasó? ¿Bien? ¿Tranquilo? Sí, sí. Sí, sí. Ahora. Muy bueno. Muy bueno. Uh, oh, shit. We have the wrong tape again. <laughs> that, was the, that was the Spanish tape. Jesus. Wrong show. Wrong show. That's our. That's, that's, our, that's when we do the yeah. Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> Esta noche. Yeah, we have to redo. It's like the old studio system days. <laughs> the old Universal horror movies. Yeah, they because they didn't dub them back in the day. They'd actually just make a whole new movie. So Blake and I have to go through the laborious task of doing a French version of the cast, the Spanish version of the cast, an Italian version of the cast, the Chinese. We're like, ni hao ma, ni hao. And then, you know, just all, all going through everything. And when we get like to like, I don't know, when we get to like african or like I know. Jumbo. Well, that's why we only do one every two weeks yeah because the we spent all the other days <laughs> doing redoing the show in other languages and you know it's for some reason that the french ones just get downloaded so much more than the american speaking french one. love us yeah i don't know we're huge in france <laughs> us and jerry lewis they just they love us uh it's so weird yeah so <laughs> we got to remember watch our tapes but it's a late night you can hear my voice is hoarse we've been yeah, we've been it, screaming and yelling at the TV. Yeah, we've been, we've been we, we're drunk and we've woken up. I fell asleep, took a nap. We're, we're gone. Um, we're back again after two weeks. Um, we did last week, we did Christine, the yeah. Stephen King, John Carpenter extravaganza. Yes. And uh, we're keeping it in the same vein. <laughs> yeah, we're keeping it in the same vein here, oddly enough, coincidentally. Well, single word title. Single word title. It's got, it's got a lot to do with uh, auto mechanics. Yeah, and a vehicle. Yeah, the title is also kind of about the vehicle and um, uh, morbid stuff. And uh, it's, I, I guess on the outset, we would say this is a very odd sleepover choice, a nostalgic well, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, this uh, is probably not going to be one of our most downloaded and listened to episodes. I'm <laughs> but that's lay it out okay. On sometimes the we have to do them for us. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes we're doing it for us. We, we roll on the mud, as they say in television. When, when if something's going live and you want it to repeat, you'll just do it anyway because you know it, when the repeat it'll go. So they call that rolling in the mud. So right now we're rolling in the mud. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly not. Uh, it's um not a typical. This would be like an older. Super Not just that the movie's older, but like you would be older, I think, if you were to rent this. Yeah. Like this would have been a movie that we would have rented for a sleepover after we met 
in our late teens and early 20s. We watched this at a sleepover. <laughs> we probably did. Do you remember the first time watching this at a sleepover? Because I remember the first time us watching this at a sleepover. But um, no, I think to, to finish your point, this is probably also something that people our age or a little bit older, when this came out on video at the video store, people would see the cover and be like, hey, this looks really cool. What the hell is this movie? Roy Schott, I loved him in Jaws. You know, people would rent this. Rob and then, Schneider. Rob Sch <laughs> I love Rob Schneider from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> I would love to do a comedic yeah. version of this movie starring Rob Schneider. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like talking to everybody like, France, the France guy, France and Nader, the copy machine, making cop bueno, buenos dias. People don't even know who Roy Schneider is. Rob Schneider. Um, remember, the, remember the I'm years? I'm more of the biggest Rob Schneider fan. Remember when he was uh, like attached to like two or three movies? He was in like Demolition Man. And then he was in... Yeah, he was like the comic relief. Judge like Dredd. Judge Dredd and Demolition Man. And, and for a little while. And then he did that other movie, which he, was actually He's in one funny. of my favorite... He's the comic relief in one of my favorite Jean-Claude Double band. Team? Double? No. Uh, knockoff. Knockoff. Yeah, he's in... That was like... He was he was hot commodity back then. Yeah, yeah. Remember we saw him on... Uh, we saw him on the street. 54th I, like, I live in that neighborhood now, so every time I walk by that corner, I was like, this used to be a laundromat, and this is where Rob Schneider used to do his yeah, laundry. Yeah, we, we saw him going to a laundromat to do his laundry one time. With a big bag of laundry, looked like Santa Claus over his back. Yeah. But this is, but we're not talking about Rob. Schneider. It was a, uh, it was a Water Boy bag. Did he have a Water Boy bag? Yeah, I remember it being Sandler like a, a bright colored, like an orange maybe <laughs> drawstring. To my recollection, it was like a had, free giveaway. It had, it had like a Water Boy logo on it. Wow, that's pretty awesome. It's it's weird. You see the stuff that gets made that there's never you know sold, or maybe it's just made for the cast or crew. I told you I have that Suburban Commando. Mm -hmm. bag that was FOT on the train somebody forgot yeah, my dad yeah. got it for me so I had like a Suburban Commando, Suburban Commando bag folders I had a shirt <laughs> nice. I had like all the executive the like, guys who do know. the Hulk Hogan oh, the podcast Hulk, yeah. would be weird <laughs> yeah I don't even know where that stuff is because I what took you gonna the, do podcast what you gonna do brother cause then that it was a really nice duffel bag, the big Suburban Commando bag. It was a black one with the logo on the side, and that ended up becoming like the bag that I had my toys in. Like I have like it was my a toy bag. Yeah, it was like a case. Like case the Dick they Tracy. The house. Yeah, I had to run. <laughs> <laughs> I take it. I, I had my Batman animated series in there. I had my uh, Dick Tracy guys. I had. Um, I don't think I had GI Joes in there, but I had like all the miscellaneous figures in there. Mm. And then I take it. cops. I had my Friday time in the future oh, time. Nice. You know, I had all them in there, cops. not the vehicles. Back to cops. I think we'll be doing a side cast on that at some One point. Day. Yeah, we'll watch the entire series. Um, but yeah, so this is a, a, a film that... Uh, anyway, Rob Schneider's not in this Rob movie. Rob Schneider's not in this movie. Rob Sh Roy Scheider's in this movie. And uh, Is this our first Roy Scheider movie? Maybe. could be our first Roy Scheider movie. Um, I think it must be, right? Maybe, yeah. Uh, I myself am a big Roy Scheider fan. I love Roy Scheider. I love this movie. Of course, Jaws, which we've talked about doing. Yeah. And we will eventually do at some point. I'm a big 52 Pickup fan. Yeah, you love 52 Pickup. I love uh, French Connection. French I, Connection, of I course. I love um, uh, Seven Up Sequest, classic. Who doesn't love Sequest from the early <laughs> 90s with uh, Brad, Brandon Davis? No, Brandon. Br Jonathan Brandis. Jonathan Brandis. Brad Davis is from. Jurgensen's movie the late, Heart. The late great Jonathan Brandis. Yes, sidekicks. <clears throat> yeah, but Scheider, Romeo's Bleeding. Romeo's, I was just about to say, Romeo's Bleeding. Uh, Stab, which was in the Still in the still of the Night, which I haven't seen. It was a Jurgensen movie that the two of them did together because Randy Jurgensen, who we'll talk about in this cast, became friends with him. They were, and then when he was, Scheider was dying of cancer, he was visiting him. I think he was like at Sloan Kettering or something. 
and they were friends and he'd go visit them and it was kind of sad his deterioration uh he's one of those guys that got old quick yeah, yeah. you know because he was probably a little older to begin begin with but he had a look for so many years then like the next year it's like he he's like oh he, his face almost changed because he got old you know yeah. like it kind of just sank in but um small part in the marathon man small but but very important part of marathon man and i love marathon man because that a scene takes place where i work 47th and 6th there Right in the Diamond District, that whole part there. Yeah. Um, but this movie is from 1977. We've been doing so many 87s. We did a couple of 77s, but this is this is a the another 77. This is a 77. This is our this is what 40th. This is the 40th anniversary this year. So this was came out the same year as Slapshot. <laughs> same year as Slapshot. Uh, around the same month as Star Wars, um, which we haven't done on the cast. No, but uh, we did the holiday holiday special. Yeah, which is what 78 or was it 77 too? must have been 78 um because it was in between um or even because i think it was after like a re-release oh you're right yeah star wars because they were trying to keep the attention going for empire uh you know to keep the public interest so they're like screw it you know that's a good cast i like that one our christmas a holiday (laughs) special holiday special cast on star wars among the greats yeah yeah that was if you were to rate in order Our holiday casts or our casts? Our casts. Flat out. Yeah, yeah. Out of almost 100. We would do... um, Uh, Star Wars would probably be... Top 10, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) You're not going to find two other people who loved the Star Wars holiday cast as much as us. No, no. We We should get footnotes and books for that kind of crap. (laughs) You know? And I think we made all valid points. I I made a point when we did the cast that I said that this will probably be the longest discussion anybody's ever had about this special. And And two, two, it's the only positive discussion anybody's ever had. I think we found that we had a lot of positives to bring to the cast, to to that that topic. And, you know, I think we gave gave it a fair shake, as they say. I think we... Gave it a hell of a shake. Yeah, we gave it a two-handed, <laughs> two-handed shake there. You know, we did, did the one hand, and we had the other hand clasp over. You know, or even hold the forearm. <laughs> nice to meet you there, Mister P- Holiday Special. But so, um, I don't remember. So, nineteen seventy-seven. Yeah. What other? Did we do anything else from seventy-seven aside from? Um, I don't know. I mean, we shot? talked about. I did the the three mothers. Yeah. With James Hancock from Wrong Reel and Suspiria came out in seventy-seven, but uh, that wasn't a specifically a Suspiria. So I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. We don't. Yeah, we don't. We don't remember anything. Uh, Maybe, but nonetheless, this we're is, traveling yeah. way back to the old 1977. Uh, we're doing Sorcerer. Forty years. Yeah, forty years ago. William. Forty Freakin's, years ago today. F- William freaking Sorcerer came out June the 24th, which is not today, but it kind of. We're gonna act like that. <laughs> we're gonna pretend it was. Yeah. So no one will know the better. Um, this is a movie for me. It's it's uh, one of those ones where growing up, uh, uh, it scarred my mind in a sense. There's like a bunch of movies that I remember, which I think we talked about recently, where like there's films, at least for me growing up, that you don't know the names of. You just yeah, saw them yeah. in childhood, and they just scared the shit out of you. This was one of them. Um, boys from Brazil, the ending from of Boys, the Boys from Brazil is another one. Uh, George C. Scott's Rage, which I only just learned about like maybe five years ago. Um, and then we just found out uh, what podcast we did. Yeah. We, Cause I just, I asked in the podcast and someone, people came up with it. Yeah. You had like some kind of cow anecdote. Yeah. And it was about, <laughs> it was like a, it was, it's a, um, Oh, I, and I forget the name of it now. It's, it's something. 
Oh, but someone answered it, and it's the guy from Gremlins is in it, and uh, I think uh, maybe Robert Urich, uh Urich, Robert Urich was in it, and uh, oh, I forget the name of the damn movie now, but it's uh, but I, a listener like I had five listeners like you're talking about this, and I was like, oh my god, I am, but I, it's not on DVD anymore. But so there's movies that you know just stay with me and kind of shape my mind, and this was one of them, and I remember watching this on my little Quasar cabinet model television when I was like five in the living room you know, one during the day. And I think I caught this movie probably, you know, the truck scenes on. Yeah. And it just completely held my attention. And I remember the bridge scene in this movie, with the, which is the poster of the movie in the truck, like, you know, at a 45 or 50 degree angle. And I'm just like, and then I remember <laughs> yeah. keeping it, not only keeping my interest, but I, my understanding of what was happening. So like the scene later on, like when the other truck blows up, I was I was completely in it. Like I was with them, and it was a surprise to me. And I was like, oh, you know, like it was a nail biter. And then, so then for years, I never knew what this was. You know, I knew I watched it with my dad. And then like it's like trying to ask my dad, like, do you remember what movie we were watching? He's like, I don't, I don't know. What <laughs> you know, come on, and that was that was twenty years ago. You know, and so it's like so for years I had like you know a handful of movies I didn't know the names of. There's also, I have very fond movies, of uh, memories of watching movies with your dad, because there's times I've slept over, and you sleep late. Yeah, you get up with my dad, <laughs> and you go, you go watch stuff yeah. with my dad. I mean, your dad has that lion documentary that oh, he Oh, yeah. Loves. My dad went through a phase in the, if, if people remember, like, in the 90s, where you were able to get, like, National Geographic, those... Um, African safari watch lines up close, you know, at night, you know, with hyenas and stuff. So he would get, he was getting all those in the mail, like a, the bear one or the lion one or the tiger one. So, yeah. and, and then he had one of them. So I remember, yeah, we, we, you, you we, ever see this? <laughs> no. You got up and then, no. <laughs> <laughs> and you come in and waking up in the like at noon and me and your dad, like no, sitting, cups of coffee, <laughs> sitting there, sitting there watching lion documentary. Remember that? I had a girl sleep over that night. Remember when was like downstairs? Yeah, yeah, and then uh, you're like, I better get out of here. This is weird. And then you went up, and then that was, and you, yeah, it was. That's like bonding experiences with Patsy. My dad makes a cameo <laughs> in this movie. Almost, it looks like at You're the beginning of like the opening of this movie. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which we'll get into in a little while. Uh, but do you have movies like that? Have we talked about this? Like you have movies that you remember seeing when you were little, then you realized that, like, I, you know, I can't think of any. You know, I can't think of any that like. Later on, I figured out that that's what it was. There was the, there was the Phantasm Two. We we, we talked oh, about. Yeah, it. I the, talked the, about Phantasm the, Two. The chainsaw fight. The chainsaw fight. I yeah. just saw like this crazy chainsaw fight. Yeah, and everybody was like, "Oh, that's from Army of Darkness." I was like, "No, it's not from Army of Darkness." I know that by heart. And so it wasn't so long. That was in high school, and then it wasn't until well after college where I just no. I guess it was in college. It yeah. was on like Monster Vision or something, and we were sitting in your your room in the apartments in the old. Yeah. And uh, and it was on. I was like, "Holy fuck, this is that movie." There's nothing <laughs> quite like that to be able to when you when it when you make yeah. one and one is two, and you're like, "Oh my god, it's answering a live question." So I guess yeah, there's that. I can't think of any other ones. I'm it, sure there are, but I just can't think of any ones. Yeah, that. it's it's odd because f- f- very early at age, I, I became fascinated with film and cinema and all that kind of a thing, and. and Along with that, these kind of movies that I saw growing up that I didn't know the names of have st- stuck with me and almost haunted me. And then it's kind of been fun to find out yeah, all yeah. these movies are and, and, and them actually being good movies. Like The Boys from Brazil, the ending is so messed up. And then like with the dogs and then it's like, you know, I remember that. And it's like seeing that or 
Um, the George C. Scott movie Rage, which I only learned about because they now have the Warner archives and they burn them to order. You know, and that was on like a trailer for one of the Warner archives. Like, oh, that's the movie. You know, and I got that. It was, again, it's this movie that like came and went that he directed and maybe even uh, wrote George e. Scott. Yeah. So it's fun to find these things out. And this was one that I think when, I didn't know until we got into college because in college, I think our cinema studies teacher had us watch the original version of this Wages of Fear from 1953 or 52. And um, while we were watching, I was like, I've seen a movie exactly like this, but it's a modern movie. And then he's like, oh, it's, um, you know, it's closer. <laughs> it's right higher. And then I went and like, and then we went and, and then it wasn't available or that, or I went to Best Video, the video store in Connecticut yeah. that you know of that had everything. And I found a DVD copy of it. And then I, or a video. And then I, that was it. And I watched it. It blew my mind. And then I remember trying to get you to watch it. And I remember we watched it in my apart, my single apartment. Yeah, like, watch old. this, God yeah. Come on. And then I remember you not Tied being... me down. You weren't be too impressed with those, with all those those things things eyes. Things. Yeah, you're like, ah, ah. Like, do you see? Do you see? Then I lit you on fire and threw you down a, 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 a wheelchair down the thing. But I remember... Wa- Mixing movies. Yeah, all kinds of... That was Manhunter with, with the clockwork or just five people that stayed with that that um, tangent there, that, that fluidity of the of jumping around on Cheers to you if we follow yeah, that. Mazel tov. Um, but I remember yeah, you not I don't I don't remember you really caring for it because we watched it and you were like, eh. Yeah, was, I don't remember. I don't remember that occasion. Yeah. I must, you must have drugged me a little too hard. <laughs> well, maybe we were drinking. It was in it was in when I had the single in the in the I've old. seen it several times since and yeah. I and I do enjoy this movie a lot, but I don't um, remember I remember you discovering it. Yeah. And like realizing that that was something from your childhood. But I don't necessarily remember watching it. Mm. And, uh, but when you've watched as many movies together as we have, <laughs> it all kind of blurs in. And that might not have even been a sleepover. That could have just been an afternoon. Yeah, yeah. You know, it could have been just light out. And me sitting in my bed, you sitting on the floor because it was a t- tiny little room and me want, you know, we're watching it like on a 10 inch TV. You know, and then because um, it's an odd movie and it's and I think that was a, a, a kind of a reason why it one of the reasons why it didn't really do as well. You know, the formatting is weird and it starts a little um, it starts odd and, and that was especially for audiences back then couldn't really understand how the format was. Even me watching it back then, it's kind of it almost had like four different starts. Yeah, you know what I, mean? well, I appreciate that about this movie. I mean, if you, if you haven't seen this movie and I have a feeling that there's a good a, at least a sizable yeah. member of, of our listenership that hasn't seen it. Uh, we're going to spoil the shit out of this movie, probably. Yeah. So, um, and and the, I don't know if that really matters for this movie, but... Yeah, you're right, because there's not really any kind of, like, surprise or but I, reveal. I've come to really appreciate a movie. There was a movie that came out, uh, I don't know, a decade or so ago. Named maybe Spartan. Okay. It was done by David Mamet and it had Val Kilmer. That's in it. Spartan, yeah, yeah. And I remember I went to Which see I haven't it. seen. I but. went to see I'm not gonna spoil anything, but what I will say about it is I remember seeing that movie in the movie theater and loving the ride of it. Yeah. It's the kind of movie like this movie where you're kind of thrown in at the beginning and you're not given anything. Yeah. There's like no exposition. There's nothing. You're just kind of made to witness the events happening. And even in Spartan, something, what's happening, even the even the people in the movie know more about what's happening than you do. Yeah. But I loved being 
as an audience member, being a couple of steps behind yeah. and having to catch up. Well, I find that and thinking that it was very smart filmmaking because there's there's going to be a large, not a large, but there'll be a percentage of the audience that doesn't pay attention or doesn't like and that. isn't going. And but I loved being like having to figure it out, like the yeah. mystery, the the trying to figure out what's happening. Like, what are they talking about? And then eventually, you do catch up and you're in rhythm with yeah. the characters. This movie's a little bit like that in that. It starts with like these four prologues, yeah, where you're kind of introduced to the characters that we're going to follow later in the movie, one by one, four characters, their four stories, kind of explaining why they end up where they are later in the movie, and you don't know what you're watching. You yeah. don't know why it's going from you know Jerusalem to France to Veracruz <laughs> yeah. in, in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and you don't know how they're connected. They're all different languages. Yeah, it's all like different French, subtitles. There's Israeli, there's uh, Spanish, and you, and as an audience member, you just are kind of forced to follow to 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 go along the ride yeah. and be in you know and have everything kind of left to the imagination because you don't know how any of these things are connected. You don't know how these characters are connected. You don't know anything. And you're just kind of watching these like little vignettes that are, like you said, it's almost like there's four beginnings of the movie because there's four characters and you're seeing the four, you are seeing four beginnings to yeah. this movie. <laughs> and then you finally, 20 minutes in, you get to where they're all kind Even of... Maybe more. It's yeah, like a half, half hour. hour. You start to see them. Oh, they start sharing the same space walking across when they get to that little yeah. village. So yeah. I, I find it... I mean, maybe when we watched it when I was fucking 20. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, was, I wasn't into it. I don't remember. But now... As an as years later, I kind of really appreciate about because well, even now I was like, I was thinking as we're watching it, I was like, are we gonna really have to explain like what is happening in this? I was like, am I gonna am I going to need to ask Dion? Even though I've seen this movie like five times in the last fifteen years, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you know, I'm like, I don't even know what the fuck's going on. Like, even that many. Years. Well, I find that the most exciting. Like I love movies that like horror movies especially or any kind of movie that really just doesn't give you anything like you just said and you're just along for the ride and you have to figure it out yourself or you know this is or you're just witnessing a course of events like yeah. and i think we were talking about witch a couple weeks ago and i kind of felt that with that it just goes or um other movies that just they just start and you got to be with it i think there's a uh, steam mcqueen movie bullet that people give a lot of shit about. They say it, it's got a, the greatest car chase in movie history, but the movie isn't that very good. But that's a movie there where if you're not paying attention, they don't really give you any hints. They don't. It's not like Law and Order where they're going to sum up. So you mean that the guy did this, and we have to go get him to get this? Yeah, you know, like we're going to get yeah, him on the yeah. set. You just got to follow along. You got to be the detective, and if you don't keep up and you don't pay attention, you're going to completely fall out of it. And then people sometimes, if it's on the filmmaker or the storyteller's point of view, or if it's on the audience's point of view, they can't appreciate that, and then there's some sort of friction and then that's why they can't identify with the movie and that could be a reason when this movie came out the first 20 minutes 15 minutes of the movie are foreign languages so yeah, people yeah. were like what the hell am i watching what's going on here there's four different beginnings i'm so confused um i don't know who these people are they're not recognizable to certainly american audiences except for ray scheider uh and then finally when at 25 minutes in or so when you get to the to this desolate village in i think chile chile and then you kind of start realizing what's going on. And then when that story evolves, and then when you get to the second to the third act, yeah, it just gets, for me, it's like, I mean, this is one of my favorite movies of all time, probably because I've seen it when I was very little, but it also, 
it might have even subconsciously for me got me into the kind of stories I like to tell where it's like they're I like stories and you've read some of my stuff I've written it's like I don't to me like you don't have to the happy endings aren't always the case I yeah. like sad endings I like endings that don't you know the, the realistic endings you know the, the brutal you know uh, of fate and realism and you know uh, main characters die you know good guys die bad guys survive you know bad guys win good guys don't you know so I like that idea of storytelling and sometimes people can't don't like that you know they like to have the bad guy get their comeuppance so they don't they need to have a clear defined good guy versus bad sure. guy you know when it's and then so it's when it's marred as either an anti-hero or worse it's a bad guy that not necessarily you're rooting for like a Hans Gruber of a diehard like he's such a good villain you love him yeah. but he's just, you don't know or these people who am I supposed to root for here I think that can be off-putting for an audience well yeah well this movie is a movie that um and it's something that I've become very uh conscious of aware of uh as i've gotten older and and tend not to like certain movies because of not uh when when there aren't when there are characters that are like bad people oh and you're supposed to and i don't care about them yeah and then you're supposed to have some sort of like uh empathy for them I, like, and then i'm forced to watch like an hour and a half <laughs> you know that to give an example to that there was a movie who with um What's the break-in movie with what's his face? Who's a great actor who I love, uh, uh, Stephen Lang, where he plays the blind guy in Detroit, Detroit, Detroit City. No, and they break into his house, and uh, so oh they, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, what yeah, I mean, yeah, I that know, was the movie. Like, breath, he, uh, don't breathe. Or something yeah, like he that. was amazing in the movie. I loved him, but then it's like. At the beginning of this movie, these guys, these people are, are they're they're breaking into people's houses, pissing on people's things, stealing their stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then like the one girl is like, oh, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. And then when they break into this guy's house, and he takes them on and starts killing them, and you realize he's a serial killer. I'm supposed to suddenly have empathy for these people, <laughs> like they're getting what they deserve. Yeah, yeah. You know, or it's or you have the, I mean. I mean, I think like you take something like Scarface as like a cautionary tale or something, or or you know, you that's a movie where it's like a classical story. But the movie where you have like the gangster or the drug dealer being the person you're supposed to root for, I'm like, yeah. I have no sympathy for. These yeah, people. that's why, like in you my know, older age, like I never there's I never really liked. I've gone away from like the mob movie, yeah, and stuff like that. But you know, um, when rewatching some of them, like a Goodfellas or certain, like I guess a Donnie Brasco, I think you start to realize. Well, that's Stepping why I've always back, really liked Donnie Brasco. You, you at least then it's like a, shitty, he's a good guy yeah. who's stuck in like this weird situation. You know, or you realize a lot of it. I haven't seen Black Mass yet, the um, the Whitey Bulger, Johnny Depp movie that takes place up in Boston. But I yeah. think a lot of those movies, a good mob movie, you, you certainly always have the idea of like Casino Goodfellas glorifying it, Sopranos. But I think with the Sopranos too, you start to realize that past the, if you can look past the glorification, there is this subplot of these people are just yeah murderers you know they're unlikable the 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 world they live in is actually really shitty past the money and the drugs and the women or whatever and these people are you know they have terrible lives or they're killers or they're they're you know so it's it's, you know well it's like uh, somebody recently on twitter was they were talking about pitch black Vin Diesel. The Vin Diesel movie. And I was like, I never liked Pitch Black. In fact, I have a no Vin Diesel rule because of Pitch Black. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but everybody loves Pitch Black. <clears throat> and I haven't seen it since the movie theater. But my recollection of that movie, uh, and people can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like Vin Diesel's a bad dude, right? He's, yeah. he's a bad guy in that movie. Okay. I mean, he's like a criminal. I think so. I haven't seen it since I watched it. And then, the like, the main house. heroine is willing to, like, eject 
all the people in hypersleep to save her own ass. So I don't like her. No. Well, why, why would you? Why I don't should like, you? Right? <laughs> I don't like her. I don't like him. So well, what like do I care? Keith David's in it. I remember he was some guy in it. In it like he was like yeah, some priest but all or those something. people get killed off. Yeah, exactly. yeah they, they just become like fodder for <laughs> to my uh, recollection for the guy. But where we're going with this movie is that these four vignettes that are introducing these characters are they're all pretty despicable people. Yeah, for the most from part. their actions. Yeah, you know we have a hit, a hitman. Yeah, played by my dad. Played by dad's by yeah. <laughs> At the beginning of it, who, at the uh, beginning of it, uh, who, yeah, that first shot of him looks, uh, it looks exactly like my father with the mustache and the style of, of just the back then, yeah, back then in the eighties. Uh, and then you we have, have a French stockbroker, yeah, who is uh, he, who's is, involved in some kind of bank. It's uh, embezzlement. He's falsif- he's falsifying funds that he doesn't have, and he's married into a very established firm that his wife and her brother. It's been in the family for, I don't know, decades. And it's this very, uh, very well-renowned firm. And he, with, along with the brother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his yeah. wife's sister, have falsified these funds and they've been found out. And now they owe, like, I don't know, it's like, what was it, 20 million francs or something. And they don't have the money and they go to the father. Father's, the father-in-law is like, no, you did this, whatever. And he quickly realizes that it's going to take down the entire firm, the family. He's going to go to jail. He only had 24 hours to get the fir- You know, he bullshitted his way out of the meeting. Yeah, yeah. So he has to run. And his brother-in-law blows his brains out. Commits suicide th- over it. Which is his, that, which I didn't realize until doing the research, is that's the, the you know, his wife's brother. She's yeah, in the yeah, restaurant yeah. having lunch. He blows his brains out in the Porsche, and he ends up running. And then the third one you have is a Palestinian who is a, he's like, I guess you could call a terrorist. He's a terrorist. And they blow up a bank in Jerusalem. Yeah, right outside. Uh, and uh, the whole... And then we have Roy Scheider. We have Roy Scheider. The whole plot, and then... Who's the whole, a wheelman of a... Of like an Irish gang, yeah, he's in who, this Irish who rob a church, but they and, and, and shoot a priest, <laughs> which is a tr- which is evidently a true story. This all really happened, yeah, a similar heist. But what happens is they rob the wrong church. They rob a mob fueled church, and the priest they shoot, who I think survives, is the brother of, of like a, a mob boss, a mob boss from Queens, Italian. And they're like, you know, and the other people die in the in the car crash when they're leaving. But Roy Scheider survives and escapes, so a, a bounty's put on his head because of what happened, and he was kind of a. He never carries a gun. He was kind of, but you know, guilty by association. And even the whole this whole movie involves like fate in the in the and that we'll get into what the title of the movie even references. But even at the beginning, when we're talking about the Palestinian terrorist, he just by sheer luck out of the four guys he was with, he's the only one to get away just by sheer luck. One two guys get killed, the, or one guy gets killed, the two others get arrested by the Israeli uh, special commandos, and he just by sheer luck and fate is able to escape. So that could have been any one of those guys, but he got away. Yeah, and uh, you know, so right off the bat, you realize this, this, the, the, you know, it's like the the Janus, the double fate here of of anything goes. And this has also been compared to like Robert Altman movies. Like I have a big affinity for Robert Altman's Shortcuts, and that's a similar thing where there's just these little vignettes of people who aren't really connected. And then at the end, they're somehow connected in, the, in in an art house kind of a way, and it's a good movie. And in the seventies, you got a lot of that where you had these movies that are like, you know, what's going on here? What's happening? Yeah. You know, um, this was also compared to uh, Werner Herzog, a guy we have a big affinity for, his Aguirre Wrath of God, where that's a movie about these conquistadores helmed by um, Klaus Kinski going into the uh, Florida Everglades looking for the the, the Fountain of Youth. But kind of like in an apocalypse now kind of way, they kind of lose their minds trying to find this, and they all go against each other, and they just and the villain, the natives, they just go crazy. Yeah. And there's similarities here, but also on the front of it, 
William Freakin, the director of this movie, has also said this was kind of like Herzog for him because there's another Herzog movie called Fitzcarraldo about a guy who wants to have an opera house in the middle of a South American jungle, which is insane, yeah. but they actually have to drag a yeah. riverboat up a mountain, and they actually, for the movie, dragged a riverboat <laughs> up a mountain, and uh, freaking compares himself. It's like, basically, that's what I did. I became Fitzcarraldo in the jungle. Yeah, much trying like, to cross these giant trucks over yeah, a raging river. Much like um, Francis Ford Coppola did in Apocalypse Now, and he kind of, like Francis Ford Coppola in Apocalypse Now, lost his mind, freaking kind of lost his mind doing this. And, and yeah. even at the end of this movie... We find the fate of all these people in the movie, not only the characters, but even the people connected to the movie. Freaking, this kind of ruined Freakin's career. Like, nobody was scathed from yeah, this movie, you know? Yeah, well, it's an interesting, you know, you got to take into account, this is 1977. William Freakin's coming off of the successes of The French Connection and The Exorcist. Yes, huge movies. Two huge movies. I mean, Exorcist was, you know, one of the first blockbusters. Could have redefined horror, I think. The, the horror, you know, put... I think horror, the American horror film back center stage for the world. Yeah. You know, and then the French connection was um, like Paulina Kale, the, the, the astound critic that we bring up in the Dirty Harry cast. She says like that was shot in such a doc kind of a style that added a whole new realm of realism, the grittiness of that you'd see, you know, people we've talked about this at length before prior to French connection and Dirty Harry or Bullet, you had this police procedural French Connection, you brought it to the streets, the grittiness. They're swearing, you know, Gene Hackman saying the N-word or whatever. So you have a real lot of, you know. So these were huge defining things for freaking. And, at, at and, that when, time, you, and you, when you have two movies that are that big. You can do anything you want. You have basically a, a blank check and a Paul pass. To yeah. Do. And <laughs> just about anything. And he doesn't end up embarking on this movie until like four years after he made The Exorcist. Yeah. And in between, I'm, I'm a little fuzzy with his career in the 70s, but he did like The Brinks Job, uh, which is the, a movie about the, this legendary um, uh, bank robbery in Boston that Peter Falk stars in. And he did a couple other things. Um, but this movie is an example of a couple reasons uh, where one, this kind of becomes the end of an era. This is one of the many flops that you have at the time that come out, like uh, Heaven's Gate by uh, Michael Cimino. Uh, you have um, Scorsese does New York, New York that flops. Uh, you have Coppola comes back from the jungles and does one from the heart, which we talked about in the Blade Runner cast because a lot of the neons yeah. come from that. All these movies by these directors who were astound, like they were like visionaries in the 70s, start kind of falling by the wayside because the audience their their uh taste change for because of where the world is in the 70s with watergate and what's going on in the real life uh the greediness of new york corruption whatever and as well as that they embrace wholeheartedly escapism again with star yeah, wars i think that's definitely part you know, of it but it's also that uh you know, not all of them, obviously, but Sorcerer definitely, I wouldn't put this in that category. But a lot of those movies that flopped weren't. Yeah, they weren't. They weren't the typical. But they weren't as you know, good. Yeah, but you know what? The, I guess. <laughs> as, as their previous work. You know what? The point, I guess, if you take, I agree if I take Sorcerer out of that mix, th this was uh, the end of the era where if you had, a, if you were. Uh, popular, the studio lets you write a blank check as long as you can bring back. They didn't care about the content. Yeah, yeah. Back then, you could still, if you were if you were number one, as long as there was a chance that your mo your movie could make back whatever, they 
they wouldn't care what the hell you did, you know. Yeah, and yeah. you see that in the seventies with you know, you have these real kind of thought provoking movies like One Flew the Cuckoo's Nest, like Deliverance, like All the President's Men, um, Easy Rider. These real kind of social conscious, and those movies kind of die around you know Star Wars and after that because uh, Dog Day Afternoon because people are just like those don't really work anymore. And then studios kind of after this movie with these other flops, they're like, you're not making. Certainly not this movie, but the other guys' movies. They're like, you're not making the movies that people know or or know you for. You know, Coppola, who did Apocalypse Now, and Godfather, then he goes and makes this weird musical that's kind of this kind of fantasy, and the people are like, they're not going to want to see that. You know, what, what are you doing? So this kind of ends the era of the director having carte blanche to just go do whatever he wants, and the studio's going to back them. And also this movie is another example, uh, along with this tendency with especially Apocalypse Now, where... Uh, and, particularly John Landis in the 70s, where people, the directors certainly were getting more outlandish, no pun intended, but Landis, outlandish, and dangerous in what they were doing, certainly with Apocalypse Now, certain with aspects of this movie, Sorcerer, Landis blowing up a gas station, Blues Brothers with real dynamite that almost killed people, up to the point where you have come Twilight Zone, the movie, yeah. people actually get killed on set, and people are like, whoa, 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 and then finally they rain back and, now, in retrospect, to people are like, yeah, we should have never been doing this. You know, <laughs> yeah, even freaking yeah. now is like an interview is like, I don't know how we got away with the shit we did and this sorcerer because this was so dangerous. You know, yeah, but freaking's also a guy who's firing off guns. Yeah, on sets, on sets of the Exorcist. You know, he to shoot startle people, slapping a priest in the face. Yeah, he's <laughs> during the making of the Exorcist. They're flying a car down, uh, you know, for French Connection with you know basically very minimal use of extras on streets. You know, that anything could go wrong there. You know. It was that guerrilla-style f- filmmaking that our friend Randy Jurgensen, who's connected to this movie, talks yeah. about that in the 70s, where you just go steal a shot, who cares? Well, even in this movie, when they shoot the bombing of the Bank of Jerusalem, yeah. while they're shooting it, like two blocks away, or in the equivalent of two blocks, I don't know Jerusalem that well, yeah. how it's laid out, but the, there's an actual terrorist bombing. Yeah. And so they just grab their gear, and they run, run over it. and just like film the aftermath of it for the movie. Yeah, and there's and that adds to that documentary kind of style. No realism. thought of, like, could there be another one? Yeah. You know, or, just, the, or what's what's actually happening the politics of the moment they just go and just steal the shot and grab the footage and it's uh it's that i that era of just trying to have that documentary style feel which is almost in part of the uh movie uh the taking of algiers i think it's called that jurgensen brings up in one of the interviews we did with him about that people the terrorism that was happening here in the 70s by like the the Weathered Underground, the BLA, Black Liberation Army, the Black Panthers, they started watching the movies, this movie in Algiers about the French were occupying Algiers and the Algerian people just started to do these bombings. And, you know, so that movie was so uh, startling for people to see, one, to influence how people did terrorism here and abroad, but also the documentary feel and style that was so unprecedented in that movie where like you have just a cop standing on a corner, somebody walks up behind him and shoots him in the head and people have never seen that before. Yeah. So that you start bringing elements of that into this movie where, sure. you know, that that feel and style and certainly that little scene with the Israelis and, and stuff. And for any kind of new listeners what Dion's referring to in terms of Randy Jurgensen is, uh, Randy Jurgensen is in this movie and I'm sure we'll talk more about Randy Jurgensen, but he was a guy who was a cop who was associated with William Freakin during the French Connection and uh, we talk a lot about him when we did our cruising episode which is also William Freakin but Dion had knows him and has done a few pretty in-depth interviews with him and we have them yeah in our back catalog, in our back catalog. so you can listen to 
us, him all about, about this guy's life. I mean, it's fascinating. Yeah, and his life as a cop and his life as in the film business. He becomes an actor, a producer, uh, um, a consultant, um, uh, and he's you know he's he's in the French Connection. He's in the Seven Ups. He's in a whole bunch. He's in Maniac. He's in a whole bunch of movies in the seventies into the eighties. He's in Sorcerer, uh, Cruising. As you said, that we did a podcast on is a is actually about the case. Pacino plays him in the movie, and he's yeah. also Pacino's partner in the movie. So he's he's banter's about, and he's all about, and you know, and in he had a close association with Freakin. He's in Good uh, Godfather. He kills. He's one of the guys that kills Sonny at the toll booth, and uh, he just was a, a cop in New York City at the time who got work being a. Uh, kind of like a technical advisor because he was a cop and can get stuff closed for him. And then they became fen- friends. And then he, because of what happened to him in his life of uh, hunting a, a cop killer and, and a completely separate thing, right when his NYPD detective uh, career dried up, he then sim- slim- seamlessly blended into cinema. And he was in cinema for the next two decades. Yeah. So, and he shows up in this movie and helps them secure a lot of the locations while they were in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And I think he hooked them up with the guys that the real... Uh, robbers who were used, non-actors. A lot of non-actors in this movie. You have, mm-hmm. at the beginning, um, when they're in Israel, the commandos are all the real Israeli commandos. When they're in Elizabeth, New Jersey with Roy Scheider, uh, that guy uh, who holds up the front man, they call him, when he goes in the rob, he was the real robber who did that job at a different church around the same block. Yeah, that, that, that this scene was inspired by. Yeah, um, the, there's another guy in that gang, the Irish guy. There's two Irish, like off-the-boat Irish guys who are IRA members who they were using in the movie. And then once they get down to, to uh, Dominican Republic, where the, the supposed to take place in Chile, when they're shooting down there, a lot of those people, that the town they shot in, that was all real people as well. They used a lot of non-actors in the movie. Uh, and it's a, it's an interesting movie because of how it just got slaughtered. You know, people weren't into it. It came and went. It's so yeah. bad that... Yeah, I mean, there's a huge... You know, look, it's it's not a commercial movie. No. For one. Two, I agree with Gene Siskel has said that he thought that this was a horrible name for this movie. And even and I kind of And I kind of agree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to imagine seeing... In 1977, going to a movie theater and seeing a poster that says "Sorcerer," yeah, from the director of, of the Exorcist, of the Exorcist, and you think you're going to go see a, mo- a movie with heads turning around, and you get in there and it has nothing, and it's almost like a bait and switch, and audiences like, "What the hell is yeah. going on here?" And it also it starts just, off in foreign languages. You're like, "Are we watching the right movie?" Yeah, well, even you know? but at least the I mean, the Exorcist even starts yeah, like, like Iraq. in Iraq. Yeah, yeah. So even that, you can kind of like be like, wrap oh, your head right. around. But yeah. eventually. Uh, and to this day, I mean, I understand his explanation of why it's called Sorcerer, but I don't, still don't get like why you would name this movie Sorcerer. It's not even the lead truck. No, his name Sorcerer. No, well, yeah, which we can get into. Yeah, it's 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 one of the two in it, and uh, yeah, it's and it's just, I mean, to the point where they had to put disclaimers. They had three disclaimers. This was not about the supernatural. Yeah, well, one one lobby card said this is not about the supernatural. Another lobby card was like um, the movie does start off to, in 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 foreign countries with foreign languages, so it's going to be subtitled. It is not. It, it is an English speaking movie. The beginning is just subtitled, and it did so bad in the states that when they shipped it overseas for international audiences, freaking didn't. Ha- he only had final cut for domestic when they released it internationally. 
they changed the name to Wages of Fear to hopefully capitalize off of the original French movie. Yeah. And then they also recut the movie, took out the four prologues, started it with them at the village, and then kind of threw some of the prologues in as flashbacks to just try to really heavily, you know, rejigger the movie to save, try to recoup some of their losses. Yeah. So uh, Wages of Fear was a movie 53 yeah, made by a out. French director. Yeah, um, Clouseau. Who uh, also made Diabolique. Diabolique, yeah. And uh, it's based on a book. Yeah, Wages of Fear by Georges Renault. But whatever in French that is. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and it's interesting because this is, I mean, I think it, especially in the today's day and age of like the remake and the reboot, and these kinds of things. Uh, it is not a remake, really. Sorcerer. Yeah. Yeah, Sorcerer, Sorcerer is almost like a reboot. It's almost like uh, taking, basically, the only thing, it shares the basic, really basic plot. Like the story the premise, structure, yeah. And then a couple of set pieces. Yeah. So, for instance, like, these are probably not the best and most uh, popular uh, comparisons, but for instance, there was a uh, Mission Impossible Two okay. with Tom Cruise and then John Woo. John Woo directed that one, yeah. yeah. And I think Abel Farrar made a movie with Asi Argento and Willem Dafoe and Christopher Walken called New Rose Hotel. Okay, both those movies are basically taking the the premise of Hitchcock's Notorious. Oh, wow. But they're not a remake of Notorious. Yeah. It's like you take that kind of that basic storyline. Yeah. And then you make your own movie with that basic premise. Um, I mean, the Sorcerer is a little more faithful to the to the book than, than to the movie than Wages is. Yeah. yeah. It, there's there is a marked difference between. That's what I was going to ask you because yeah. you've, you've read uh, you, you brushed up on your French. I brushed up on my French and, and you I read bought. The, <laughs> and you read the, the book. So I, I was going to ask you. Is which one is kind of more has more faithful what are the comparisons to the book? Not that I want to spend like yeah. extended period of time, but clearly it's more like uh, when you know when a movie's re- like for instance like a horror movie, Dracula, the Frankenstein, yeah. Like you know we have Howard Hawks has produced a thing from another world, and we have John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah. Both of them, the, the Thing is considered a remake, but it's really just another re- it's another telling but of they, the original but he goes source back material. To the, yeah, don't. Uh, what is it? So uh, I never know. Like I always someone's what's the name of the room? says knock. Don't know who, who goes. Who's there. who goes there? Yeah. Uh, so I'm always whenever you see that when there's a remake of a movie that's based on like a book. I'm always like, is it a remake of the movie or is it just another adaptation of the, a different adaptation of the book? Um, so in this case, there, this isn't really a remake of the movie Wages of Fear, but it's just another kind of inspired adaptation. From yeah, because the because they they if you the original Wages of Fear, the movie, much like the book, is very much a idea about the American imperialism and the idea that like you know America is coming in there. I mean, the premise of the movie. Uh, Aside from what we just said, is that these once you get past these four guys getting down to the town, this town in 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 South America in Chile, that they get to this town to escape whatever their 
they're going for, you know, they're murderers, whatever, thieves, so they're hiding out. But once they get down there, they realize when they get into this town, they're, there's they're, no money to get out. They're basically in purgatory. Yeah, they're stuck there, and they, there's no money to get out of there. They can't do it's anything. It's kind of like they're in prison, yeah. but they willfully they're went in, there. They're almost like in hell, yeah. you know, and, they, and there's no way to get out. They're trying desperately in both movies. And then uh, on the other side of the jungle, there's a uh, oil refinery, American Oil Company, which is kind of ambiguous in the sorcerer if it's American. But in the book and in, in the um, original movie, The Forages of Fear, it's an American oil company. And their derrick blows up, and it starts this huge fire. And the only way they can put it out is to snuff it out with a nitroglycerin explosion, you know, like blowing a candle out. So the nitro is housed back at this village, but it's been housed improperly all these years. Yes. And so because of that... Of a, it's part of a subgenre of film oh. that I'm very fond of, of the don't mess with the nitro. <laughs> what, 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 other, what other ones you got? We have Wages of Fear. We yep. have Sorcerer. Yep. We have Vertical Limit. Oh, Vertical Limit the same? <laughs> that's a favorite of my dad's. That's a, that, which you might have even watched with I my dad. I probably did watch that with your dad. But that's a... Apparently, nitroglycerin very hard you to have, store. You have to turn it. You have to yeah. You have to move it. It's it's because what happens is these sticks. Nobody ever stores it right, and yeah. then you have to transport it. And, and it's never. There's this whole subject of rickety. Yeah, storing. So, the the shit isn't stored right. Leaks out of the sticks into the bags that they're housed in in these crates, and so it becomes very, 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 very volatile. And any kind of like, if you pick up a little bit and you throw it on the ground, it'll pop and explode. So they realize quickly that they can't. Um, transported by air with helicopter or anything else, they have to take it through with truck. So, although still probably by air would be the yeah, but they're saying that there's too much. much you saw that guy. Safer. You saw in Sorcerer the guy, the helicopter guy's like, there's too many crosswinds. It'll start. There's going to be like a uh, and also it could be an amount to like what they have on hand. Yeah, yeah. You take the original movie. Uh, you probably didn't have helicopters back in '52 in South America, so that was out. But in the original movie and in the book, they the oil company gives them new trucks brand new in our movie sorcerer they're taking old m211s that are from like the korean war army truck american army trucks and just gutting them and making souped up a-team kind of trucks yeah so the helicopter they could be using down there could be a shitty helicopter That's too true. and this guy could be saying like no you know our our huey or i don't know what even they don't even have like a um be like mash yeah, helicopter. you know, yeah, they, 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 you know, <laughs> helicopter like the beginning of match with the bubble. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's one of the old ones. It's not like they even have like any kind of like Sikorsky or like uh, you know one of the tall. What do you call those damn things? That the big ones. Uh, so it could be just a, a problem with this helicopter. That's an old hel- helicopter, you know, and, and they can't, you know. So they realize the only way to transport this thing. Uh, they don't have a Chinook, is what I'm looking to say. You know, is they have to take it by truck over the jungle, and since you know, there's not really that many roads and all that, and these trucks are 25 years old, much like Christine was in the last podcast. <laughs> it's yeah. a very dangerous job. So the oil company says, you know what? Let's go to this village that we know all these people are there, and we're going to... stuck in purgatory. Yeah, we're going to... I will give them the <clears throat> option that they can get out. Because they know that these guys, there's a whole village of guys who would risk their lives to be paid to be able to get the money to buy themselves visas, uh, an air, a plane or whatever ticket to get out of there. In the original book, the the story starts off, uh, you don't have any backstory of any of these people, and it starts off the night at the, uh, at the oil derrick and them going, and when it happens is you l- learn quickly that it is American error, the company there. The Americans are... Um, they give bonuses to, to the to the natives that are putting the pipes in because every time you're drill, drilling down, you have to put like a new pipe on. You know what I mean? You're going lower and lower yeah, and lower. Yeah. So every, and that averages every 20 minutes. So as an incentive, the American companies 
it gives you a bonus for how many pipes you can put on per 10 hour shift. And you're doing like one every 20 minutes. So you can understand that, you know, if you're working 10 hours a day physically, you know, you run the risk of complacency, exhaustion. So you have that going for you. And, you know, the speediness, it's going to, there's going to be a problem. And at one point, that's what happens. There's an error and there's a, there's an explosion and, you know, everybody dies at the beginning of it. And you realize that it was because of the carelessness of the American company that this has happened. And then you cut to the town and that's where you get the 52 movie, the Clouseau's Wages of Fear, where you have the backstory of who was in this town and all that. You don't get any of that in the book. It just comes to let you meet these four yeah. characters in the, in the, uh, they're all stuck in this in this bar in the middle of nowhere. Some of the people do yeah, work for the you old don't, company. You, not like Sorcerer where you see like what they did to get to this town. Yeah. In the... The book and in the kind of in the... And in the original, the first version of the film in the 50s. It's like film. you just kind of roll up in this town and you get to know the characters in the town And already. it's a brutal... In the original um, Wages of Fear film, the, the town is brutal. I mean, at the start, much like at the beginning of Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch, you know, you have... in that. You have the like, the kids are playing with ants and they're having scorpions kill ants and they're burning all the they're burning everybody. In the beginning of Wages of Fear, you have a kid like he's got cockroaches tied to a string and then his, this little naked boy's playing with them. Seconds later, you have the German guy that's there. He's there's a dog tied up to like a, a an ice cream little like um, push cart and he's throwing rocks at the dog. And he's like, I hate mutts. And you quickly realize that like this is a brutal town, a brutal existence. Animals are treated horribly the whole life, and you have a hodgepodge of uh, you have Germans, you have French, you have Americans, you have British, that they're all just stuck in this town for whatever reason. Um, in, in Sorcerer, the guy who owns the bar is an ex-Nazi who, who, you know, who, was a, who got out of, after the war. He's probably for war crimes and he's hiding out down there. So you have all these people there and you realize that you know, this town is so shitty, so bad. People are dying of malaria and, One and dysentery. One thing that the 53 film has that Sorcerer doesn't have is a smoking hot chick. <laughs> yeah, she, yeah, she's amazing in it. And, and, it's, and it's, it's funny you to establish, what is that, maybe the first half hour or 35 minutes of Wages of Fear, yeah. they establish like the day-to-day in the town and you have these, these characters... Uh, you know, that are there and you, you realize the dichotomy of some of them work for the oil company, much like Sorcerer, other people, they just work in the town. Uh, some are destitute, some are making a wage, some have to like, say, Roy Scheider and Sorcerer, they, they, they live in a hotel where there's just like bunk beds stacked yeah, and people like are a just- hostel. Yeah, people are, you know, dying and they're, they have all kinds of diseases and filth while other people who maybe earn a wage working at the oil derrick site they have so they have maybe their own little room yeah in a, in a in a shitty sleazebag hotel so everybody's at different levels of poverty but nobody has the money to be able to to get out and in the book the idea is that they want to get they're kind of near the coast and they want to get a money to buy a schooner that's sitting there the the bar owner owns a schooner that's perfectly sound but is is out of the water and dry dock and if if you if they get like a thousand, two thousand dollars, they can you know paint it, put it in, and then they can go away and they can take whoever they want, and that's kind of the idea of getting away. Where uh, in the movie it is the Wages of Fear, it's about a plane in and out, you know. And in the Wages of Fear movie, the Clouseau Fifty Three movie, uh, you you meet th- these characters in the town, and then what happens is the new person comes in, Joe which is in our movie, Sorcerer's like my dad, the hitman, he comes to town and he's a real tough guy. And at first, you know, he he comes and everyone wants to impress him. He's French. The other guy that's in there, Ger- uh, Mario, who in the movie is Gerard, or the book is Gerard. Yeah. He's kind of like our, 
I guess he's like the lead. I think he's kind of like the Roy Scheider. Yeah, he's the character. Roy Scheider character in 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 this movie. He's automatically has an affinity for him. They have like a uh, a mutual because they're both French. You know, the French have a huge affinity for each other because hey, you're French. I'm French. Hey, you know what I mean? <laughs> friend. Yeah, vive la friend. You know, so um, so you know that's great. You have fellow countrymen, so they they automatically uh, uh, mesh and they're together, and it becomes like uh. In the Wages of Fear, the movie, it becomes an idea of they don't like the new guy here, but yeah. the new guy is certainly a killer. He's brought a gun with him. He's a tough guy. He'll kill anybody. There's a scene where they're playing with the radio, and the the the, the everyone in the bar wants to listen to this music, and he doesn't, and it becomes this, you know, who's got bigger balls, who'll do more. And it's interesting they set that up where this, this guy, Joe, J.O., who is the hitman that comes in Wages of Fear, he is a guy who, at all intents purposes, is a badass guy. He's yeah, a hitman. Yeah. He kills people. He has no qualms about beating the shit out of whatever. But when the story starts, this is a theme I really like, is that he and all the other guys are exposed to this other kind of fear, other this other kind of uh, danger where you're put in a situation of risking your life for something. Yeah. As opposed to, do you have the gall or the balls to go kill someone or knock somebody out? Yes. But then do you have, it's like the idea of if there's a burning building, do you have the balls or the gusto to, you know, run into that burning building to save someone? Do you have the balls to get on a truck that you know uh, if you shift wrong, because they're all standard, if you go over a bump that you're going to go sky high. And they talk about that paranoia in the book very well. It's very effective. It's a taunt paperback, like pulp thriller. And they say like, the danger with this is like with traditional dynamite, dynamite explodes. So even as silly as it sounds, there is a chance maybe that, you know, you'll get propelled away uh-huh. from the dynamite. And then you got to just watch where you land. It's like, cause it just pushes everything away. Nitro just obliterates. Yeah. So there's no trace of you. If, if you go up and you're near this nitro, you know, there's not going to be any kind of trace of you, the truck or anything. There'll just be a crater in the ground. And once they get on the road, very quickly it becomes you know uh very uh obvious that this is some shit that they've never each of them have never experienced before and they have to not only have the courage to do this task but they also have to kind of fight the demons in themselves yeah you know you know what's interesting about both movies is really like the action of the movie doesn't start until halfway in which is when they get in the trucks and they start their journey uh so in both films because even wages of fear which is, you know, aside from like the big epics back in the day, typically movies were shorter. But Wages of Fear, the movie from fifty from the fifties, is like two and a half hours. Yeah, long. it's long. It's a long ass movie. So when you don't even get going, both movies are a slow burn. I guess yeah. is what I'm saying. Um, and I didn't and, even like when we watched the first one in, in college. I didn't even care for the first one because there's so much. It's like they spend like over an hour. Yeah, just building the character and the situation before, before we even get going. <laughs> yeah, before you get these trucks on the road. You get the show uh, on the road here. There's some interesting stuff in it, though, when uh, what's the lead guy? Mario. Uh, Mario in the, when in the Mario movie. and Joe first meet and, Mar- and Mario's telling him like the ropes of the town. It's an interesting filmmaking process because it's like the conversation goes but it lasts through like multiple locations oh so they're having the same conversation but it's one of these things you see commonly today where it'll cut to a different 
scene or location, yeah. but the conversation is still happening. So it's like one conversation, but you're seeing it spread out. Like they've had this, he's explaining this conversation yeah. through like a day or three days. And he's explaining whatever. like, you can't get out of the town. Well, how about if I get a job? You can't get a job. And then it'll cut to them on a balcony. But what about if I, no, you can't then, you know, so it's, it's, that's then, very forward thinking, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And the, it's very modern yeah. in a way. And also the other thing I really appreciate about it, because, you know, I think even though you and I went to film school and we both like foreign films and uh, earlier films and stuff, even with all that kind of predisposition, I think this movie is really interesting because... Wages of Fear or so Wages of Fear. When you look at, especially, you know, Hollywood of, you know, the 30s, 40s, and when you would have, like, you know... uh, you know, Americans playing Germans or British oh, playing yeah. Nazis, or you have you know Peter Laurie playing an Asian guy. Yeah, uh, there's Germans have... talking to each other, but they're talking in English with British accents. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Whereas this movie has a, a, like a rainbow of nationalities involved, but they all speak their language. They're native, yeah. Because so it's like there's a this... lot of English in the movie, yeah. but there's also Italian, there's French, French, there's German, Spanish. Yeah. And so it's really it's it's an interesting. Thing yeah. in the context of time of to see how differently like the French would have done because if this movie was made in America at the time and apparently uh, I don't know if he would have done it for America but apparently Hitchcock was very interested in optioning the book yeah to make this into a movie there's no way he would have done that with it with, yeah like, he would have it would all have been like completely uh, you know either Americanized or or English yeah <laughs> you know, like, it, it's, it's as much as people think of Hitchcock as with synonymous with suspense critics have called wages of fear the original the most suspenseful film of all time if that's arguable or is that whatever and he at the time was trying to option it but there was some sort of clerical error in the front office with his something happened and they didn't option the book in time so Clouseau came in and was able to option the book and I think if I remember correctly he had maybe did Diabolique already? So he his name was on the uh, sure. on the map, and Diabolique is another movie that you and I both love. Yeah, uh, which they remade with yeah. Sharon Stone right in the late nineties. They did a version of Diabolique. I feel like yeah, they did. What was it Jeff Bridges? Was Jeff that Br- another movie? That I'm thinking another, that you're thinking of Vanishing Point? Maybe yeah. With with Jeff Bridges being the uh, yeah, that's right. You know, he buries right. Keith Sutherland's wife alive or something. But anyway, so both slow burns in the context of Wages of Fear. You have like a good hour or so of leading up of just getting to know the town, getting to know the people. Sorcerer takes just as long to get yeah, going, but, but in a different the, way. You, get you, the have the, you have like you split into different parts. You got the prologues, which take up the, you know maybe better part of a half an hour, and then you have like a half hour kind of. In them the in town. the town, <laughs> setting up. Yeah, and then you're about an hour in. You sh- then you get the plot of what's and going. And then we get like the explosion. And we get the plot of the trucks, and then the last part, last half of this, both movies for the <clears> most <throat> part, are like this suspense-filled journeys of trying to take this highly volatile substance through the jungle, through and, the jungle, and or bridges <laughs> and over you know, the sides and, of mountains. All that. There, and there was you a know, rough terrain. You're, you're in the. Um, reality television business uh you do you remember that they did a they did a show about the truck driving in south america recently the past couple of years and it, it had a lot of um shades of this movie where it's and it's a real you know it's a real business where these people yeah, take yeah. these trucks on these crate on the, on the side of mountains like sure, nash sure, geo yeah. or smithsonian channel all those shows i mean the ice road truckers which is obviously not yeah south america, in alaska yeah like the dangers of, of taking 
Well, big equipment. <laughs> in extreme environments. Yeah. I mean, the director of the movie, uh, or, or the, the the author of the book, uh, I think his name is Georges Arnaud, if I'm pronouncing the French correctly, he was a guy who supposedly was accused of killing his father and aunt, and he spent a year and a half in jail, but then he was, uh, the charges were cleared, and then he kind of moved from France, because he was a Frenchman, to South America during World War II, and there's speculation that he became a truck driver and he was doing this kind of transport back and forth uh-huh. in the jungles. So that's where much like, say you take an Ian Fleming who moved to like, uh, what's the name of the, uh, his, uh, he moved to Jamaica and his, what's the um, Skyfall or whatever, I forget the name of his his compound Ian Fleming had. And he started writing these these James Bond books because he was in the environment, much like the, our, the author Wages of Fear he was there. He realized, saw the you know the Americans coming in with the oil. So he said, "This will be a great story." Yeah. And it's interesting, as you said, that when um, what's his face uh, Clouseau, the French director, Professor, yeah, <laughs> Inspector, Inspector Clouseau, Clouseau <laughs> played by uh, Peter Sellers, goes to direct this movie. Clouseau <laughs> takes that angle where he, since we're in a, uh, since he, it's a, and that's more accessible, I think, for foreign directors to do than, in, believe it or not, I think this might be arguable than an American or English. English-speaking yeah. director, because the uh, French, Italian, whatever you say, they are used to watching movies in various languages, oh, subtitle, yeah. whatever. It's more accessible to them to have the idea, hey, since we're going to be in a town that's foreign and have different foreigners in the town, uh, why don't we then have these guys Well, yeah, speak? I mean, you got to take into account that, like, you know, all of Europe is made up of all these different countries with different languages. And we're all like an of, hour and a half away from Yeah, Europe. and all of Europe, like, fits... You know. Inside, you know, North America with like space. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. So there are all these like it's a lot of populations, a lot of different nationalities and and cultures jammed into a pretty small. When you think about it, a pretty small uh, area. Yeah. So you know they're all traveling back and forth and like even when I went to England last year, I was tempted to take an hour and a half train or something to Paris oh, just for the just for the day. Yeah, yeah. Just to spend the day in Paris. I didn't end up doing it because yeah. my schedule was kind of too full. But like you can just travel through all these different countries. Yeah, I mean so, my wife is English, and that's the thing. Growing up, you you just t- you can take a caravan ride, and you can, and then all of a sudden you take a f- by ferry, you cross the English Channel, and then you're in you're in Germany, you're in France or whatever, or you can take a flight flights are so cheap you could take for a hundred dollars hundred fifty dollars you can fly to greece and you can spend you know so like a lot of them they uh in europe they're accustomed to going to foreign countries it'd be like us flying to chicago or for us flying to like texas or florida yeah. it's that's how much the distance is for them but then all of a sudden you're in a different country you know where us you can just drive west for you know three days and you're still still in america you know <laughs> You know, with them, you'd be like almost the Russia, you know? You so know, and even, you know, even if you flew, even if you drove to Canada, I mean, there's lots, you know, there you have the French Canadian, but yeah. you also just have uh, a lot of, of English Can- speaking, you know, most of Canada just speaks English. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's an interesting, so they, so there is a, uh, and, uh, and very interesting and effective, I think, uh, way of doing the original wages of fear. I which think is it's really have, fascinating, you know, if you put it like just being, uh, Growing up with American film, even if it is older, it's just like it's very, you know, for lack of a better term, it's very foreign. Yeah, to, to see a movie like that, to have all these, you know, and it and it being then a French movie, and then so you, but you have English, you have all these different 
different snippets. Yeah, there's of, like the American guy that works for the oil company. He speaks English. Yeah. And so, and everybody else speaks English too. When they speak to him, they speak English. Yeah. And then, or and then have, there's even he's scenes, got an Italian roommate. Who, yeah, Mario uh, uh, Luigi, and then he, Mario and Luigi. Well, that's well, that's another <laughs> footnote. There is a great book um, about Super Mario Brothers that I read about the history of Mario Brothers, and they they even reference in the book that some filmmakers could say that Mario and Luigi came from the two guys, Mario and Luigi and Wages of Fear, because. Uh, I mean, the the names are reversed in the movie, but the little guy Luigi looks like Mario with the mustache, and yeah, he's a little yeah. guy, and then the tall guy, who Luigi, who's Mario in the movie, but he's a tall, slim guy, you know. Yeah. And, you know, that it's that's some speculation, but and then there's even the idea of when they're talking, you see like two guys speaking French, and then he, what's he saying? You know, he's like, well, yeah, he's yeah. speaking Italian, you know, they're speaking also, they don't even understand each other. Uh, but it's such an uh, amazing idea to think about, you know, the the concept of that you're for whatever reason, if you're running from the law or you're running from your past or whatever, and you're getting to this yeah. town and then you get there and then you never think past, okay, once you're there, you don't have the money to get out and you're stuck in this purgatory, sure. this hell. As much as there's fascinating th- th- things that I find fascinating about the Wages of Fear film, um, and like you said, there are people that claim that it's the most suspenseful film of all time. Uh, I am kind of partial to Sorcerer and and actually find myself more engaged with the suspense of sorcerer. Yeah, for me, sorcerer, for the affinity I have for it, is is a f- more favorite film for me. But I have developed a fondness for Wages of Fear as well as since I've read the original source material. I do like the idea that once they get on the road, um, for Wages of Fear, it becomes a conflict between people. You have to work. You're all bad guys. You have to work together because if you don't work together. Yeah. You know, you're all going to blow up. But then Sorcerer is more... Which I think is... You it's know, like a metaphor for life. Yeah, but know? also, you know, William Friedkin talks about how, like, that was inspiration. This idea of, especially the 70s, you know, and uh, coming out of the 60s and the Cold War and all this stuff. And how this idea of, like, you don't... You know, thinking of these four guys in this situation being four guys that don't like each other that have to get along or they're going to blow shit up. They're going to blow themselves up. Was, they're sitting on a powder keg. Yeah. yeah, was like for him a bit of a metaphor of like the Cold War. Or the like countries, we, yeah. We don't like Russia and, you know, but if we don't figure out how to get along, we're going to end up starting nuclear war and blowing ourselves yeah. up. But um, we may but not get along with China. But what you're but... saying is like the book and is, you know, more about that even than Sorcerer, even though that was kind of a theme. That, yeah, which translates that, into the movie Wages of Fear. Yeah. You see a lot of that, that idea, and they get these new trucks and they go on this mission, and then it becomes very much a nail-biter for them is that you very quickly start to realize that, you know, do you have guts to do this? Do you not have guts to do that? And then it becomes this idea of you facing yourself. You sure. Are you a man? Are you not a man? Yeah, yeah. You know, which is kind of terrifying if you take that down to that level where you're now in a situation where you could blow up at any second. You know, and then would you be able to do it? I don't know. Would I be able to? You know, who knows, you know? And my favorite part of Wages of Fear is when all's said and done, and he gets out of the truck, and he's covered in, like, crude oil. Yeah. He lights a cigarette. I know. Yeah, he's all, that's how, these people are smoking during anything, you know? And there's a there's a difference. What I like in, so, what how, in in the book, they go off the, so, what happens is, we, we tell you the we premise. probably work our way back in yeah. Sorcerer. So we tell you the premise. So what the oil, in, in all three versions, what the oil company, the idea is we're going to get four drivers, two drivers to two trucks, and we're going to send two trucks out, one truck a half hour first, the other truck, because we figure 
one of them's got to make it there, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. and then, you know, yeah, I, I forget, in, in, we, we find out in Sorcerer, it's 218 miles from the village to where the oil derrick is. We don't really know how long it is, but we figure it's the same in the other movie. So that's why you have two drivers to take over, one has to sleep. But they're a distance away from each other, so if one goes up, you still have the other one is okay, and they have a chance of making it there. So what we end up happening in the book, which is really interesting, is they get to a town, uh, the town doesn't want them to go through. The priest comes out and says, hey, look, there's this good cutoff. Why don't you go this way? Uh, and the, the priest kind of convinces them. They start to go that way. And then the other truck's waiting and the other truck comes back. And he's like, that, you know, that's a, that, that's a dead end. He did that on purpose, you know. So they go in and they beat the crap out of the priest. And it becomes this really kind of weird, you yeah. know. Uh, should they be beating the priest up in church? And, you know, it's like a bad omen. So then the, the, the f- first truck stops. The second truck goes off. And then the ch- second truck goes up. And blows up, and then in the what happens in the Wages of Fear movie, which I think is really effective, is that the second truck is going, and uh, Joe is do, draw is is uh, making a cigarette in his yeah. hand. He's, he's what do you call that? You're uh, rolling a cigarette. rolling a cigarette. And first, you see he puts the tobacco on the on the uh, papers, and you see the the tobacco gets blown. Yeah, and I find that very effective. And then you hear the noise. And I then think, you well, look. You, well, I think you have like a flash yeah. of light. Too. First, you have yeah. First, you have the the, the 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 tobacco getting blown away. Then you hear you have a flash. Then you hear it, and then so the truck goes up. And then so then what happens is in both the book and the in in the first wages of fear is they get to where the truck was. Uh, the first truck blew up and there's nothing left not except just a crater it's so crazy but since they're following kind of the road where the pipeline is the pipeline that's carrying this oil out has been damaged and it's starting to slowly sink the crater crater. and then the idea they have to try to get the truck through the crater as the oil is getting in there but if they stop the since the earth is now so messed up down there because it's spongy and the oil seeping in the truck's so heavy if it stops the truck will sink and you'll never be able to get out of there and plus it's oil and it's oil and then so it's sludgy and slick yeah so in both the book and the original movie is they they one guy gets out while the other one's driving and there gets to a point where the guy's backing up he falls and they can't stop he he can't stop or also maybe he won't stop because he's so pissed off because the guy joe in the movie the hitman has become such a pussy he's running away at you know the first sign he won't do it he won't get out of second shift you have to you know both in the book and the original film is you have to get this car, the truck up to a certain speed to go over the, the concrete and the guy's too scared. So in this scene, when they're trying to go through the the, uh, the crater, he runs him over. And then, then we, you know, I'm sorry I couldn't stop. And in the book, it becomes amazing because he gets the truck to the other side. He blew a tire. And then the guy, his leg is going gangrene. And the last bit of the book is about the exhaustion. And you, you know, it's so hot. The sun's come up and he's, the one guy's, they've been up for 15 hours and he has to try to put the tire on himself and he can't do it. And he's trying to get the guy and he's pulling this guy who only weighs like, you know, 120 pounds and he can't even get him. And his, his leg is starting to smell because he's got oil in it and it's going gangrene because it's so hot. They, they have the nitro in the steel drums and, they're, and he's like, oh my God, I can't keep my hand on the steel drum so long enough because it's so hot. What's, you know, this can blow up at any time, but he's so from heat stroke. Yeah, yeah. So that's the mindset of the book where he just, they go insane where, well, you know. Yeah, which is, you know, and a, this is a the, bit of the finale of Sorcerer. Yeah. It's not so much that in action, but like this idea of like giving into the madness. Yeah, and you just, you lose your mind on this. And then, yes, and then the finale of the two of them in the trunk where one's dying and, 
you know, there's this poignant thing in Wages of Fear where they're they're both French and they're talking about this cafe and they're like, you know, and he's kind of trying to keep the guy alive and he's saying like, you know, do you remember the fence behind the whatever the, the, the this candy store? And he's like, what fence? And then he's dies. I'm trying to think of the fence and and they it's kind of poetic and he's like. There was nothing behind the fence, wasn't there? And then he dies right before they get there, and it's kind of sad, like you said. And then he gets out and has a cigarette covered in oil. And passes <laughs> He's out, covered in you know? fruit. But in, yeah, in Wages of uh, in Sorcerer, it it gets to this kind of yeah. This so sheer let's talk madness. about Sorcerer. Yeah, we had took a detour there for like yeah half of, of, of the of, of the backstory of everything. Um, so Sorcerer here. Uh, freaking gets the idea where he's um he's gonna he he comes off of um. Doing what? The Exorcist. He's the hottest the Exorcist, thing in, in yeah. town. And he wants to make like a little movie in between this other movie he was going to do that never materialized. And uh, He was going to make a movie about the Bermuda Triangle, right? Yeah, something, some crazy it's movie like Devil's that. The Devil's Triangle. And uh, he always loved Wages of Fear. And it must have had something to do with like aliens or something because there was part of the reason that I found in research that they say it never ended up getting made is because by the time Close Encounters. he was ready to make it, Close Encounters came out and they're like, it's too Excuse similar. Me. Yeah, so he um, he's he's trying to think of what to do, and he's like, "Oh, I've always liked Wages of Fear. I saw it years ago, like in a in an art house uh, screening." So he goes to Clouseau, who did the original movie in France, and Clouseau at the time is is uh, he hasn't worked in a little while. He's got a heart condition. He's going up for surgery. And he says, "Hey, I want to do your movie, Wages of Fear." And Clouseau, the original director, is kind of like, "Why? It was a huge hit. I don't understand. I mean, I'm yeah. not saying you shouldn't do it. Yeah, he's like, but." It was done already. It was great. Yeah, like why don't you, you know? Like about my movie? Yeah, and, and and freaking's like, and I th- and I believe freaking freaking wasn't trying to bullshit him. Freaking's like, I think your movie's so good. I would love to re-release it in American audiences because I don't think American audiences really were ever exposed to it, uh, mainstream American audiences. And I don't really want to remake your movie. I want to, like we said, we, I want to try to reboot it, go back to the book, and have my own and take a template and do my own. So Clouseau's like, oh, that sounds good, and he goes and. You know, I can tell you're kind of not doing well financially. I'll give you a share of the profits too. You know, I'll, and, and I'll dedicate the movie to you. And Clouseau's like, you don't need to do that, but that's great, awesome. That's so nice of you. And so, but then Clouseau says, well, I don't own the rights to the movie. And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, the intellectual property is owned by the original uh, author, uh, Georges Arnaud. So Freakin's like, okay. So Freakin goes to Arnaud, and Arnaud's like, uh, yo, you want to remake my book? That's great because I ended up, I hated the Clouseau <laughs> Wages of Fear movie, and we haven't talked. For yeah. how many years, Clouseau and the original author? So freaking's like, okay. So he secures the intellectual property from the original author, and then he goes to try to make this movie. And uh, freaking is trying to figure out, you know, he, he at this time is um, very cocksure of himself. Very, yeah, I you know, mean, he's, even he's, today you can... When you see interviews with him, and I, and I actually am a big fan of William Friedkin, so I, but you can tell that he's... He's a little cocky. Yeah. And you can imagine that if he's cocky now, imagine him like as a young guy coming off of two fucking mega hits. And he's the first one to say I was yeah. cocky. So he starts scouting where he wants to do this movie. He goes down to Ecuador and he's looking down in Ecuador and he's looking at places like that. And that's when he's down in Ecuador doing location scouting. He starts seeing these trucks down there that are similar to the, to the trucks that he... Um, that he wants to use in this movie, and he's noticing like on the trucks, there's pictures, there's weird names on the trucks, there's they're named after mythological characters or relatives. These, so he's like, oh, that's a really interesting thing that they do down here. So he goes back up, and and he's trying to find a studio that wants to to, to produce this. And Universal at the time is like, uh, or in Paramount are like, you know, we'll we're interested because you're doing so good. We want to make money off you, but 
I don't know if we could do Ecuador. That's just crazy. And he's like, no, I want to shoot it out of the country and all that. So he writes a script with the screenwriter, uh, Wallen Green, who did, um, we just brought up uh, Peckinpah's Wild Bunch. He liked that. So him and Wallen Green get together. They come up with a script and they start shopping it around and they have an idea to, to, to show it to Steve McQueen. And they write the, they kind of even write the Roy Scheider part for McQueen. They go to McQueen. McQueen loves it. He says it might be the best script he's ever read. But he's like, he's not too enthusiastic about leaving the country. He just got married to Ali McGraw um, out of the getaway. And he's like, um, you know, I love this, but, you know, I just got married. Is there a way you can maybe write something in for her? And he's like, there's no female leads, the characters in the movie. I don't know how I'm going to write something into her. And he's like, well, can you make her, maybe give her an associate producer credit to bring her down there? Something like that. And freaking's like, no, I'm not going to. Yeah. He's very, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say, uh, what's the right word here? He's kind of. Like no, screw you. This is what I, I. This is my vision, and I'm not going to kind of yeah, like well, give you in. Know, to, he's you know, young and he's stubborn, and he's, yeah, I guess you'd say he's stubborn. He has a vision, and he's kind of like, and he's you know, and he even has said that you know, especially at the time, he kind of he was thought he thought a lot of himself. Like, yeah, he was you know, he was said he thought he was cocky. Like he said, I felt I could make a movie about like unlikable characters and the audience would go with me because yeah. I made it. And I, and I, I, yeah, I have a vision. They look what they did to my two prior films that were amazing. You know, I can do this. Like I could do anything. Yeah. And from what I've read and what I've seen, uh, him talking about, I don't think he, I don't think McQueen was trying to be a dick about it. McQueen's like, I just don't. So, you know, well, well that's the thing you ask, you got to put the shoe on the other foot. I mean, here's a guy who doesn't need, this movie no he just was he was <laughs> you know and he'd just come and off he's like i would love to do it it seems I, like seems like a great project i love the script but it ha but i don't have to be inconvenienced to do it i'm fucking steve mcqueen yeah i just got paid the biggest <laughs> amount of money in the world for doing towering inferno he's like, know, why do i need so what do you, you want know, me to i want to do it with you but you have to meet me halfway and 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 Shire, or, um freaking's like no i don't want to so mcqueen's like i'm sorry then i won't do it but at the time while he was talking to McQu uh, mcqueen he had Entertain like two other, he, he, uh, Marcio Mastriani and, and, uh, a couple other people. Like, Marcello. Yeah. Really, really big, uh, cause he wanted to get a, like the original movie, he wanted to have a foreign cast. Yeah. So he saw these people, uh, Lino, uh, uh, Ventura. And so they all signed on thinking McQueen was going to be the, uh, the big name. But once McQueen drops out, uh, one of the guys was married to Catherine Deneuve and he was going through, uh, um, uh, a Ventura was going through a, a custody battle and he didn't want to take second billing to somebody else so he said no Mastriani ended up dropping out so suddenly uh, freaking comes to the issue where he's his first second third choices aren't uh, for these roles aren't approving he approaches Robert Mitchum at the time who's kind of you know still big and Mitchum's like, it sounds like a great idea, but he says, and it, you know, you can you can even picture Mitchum saying, this. he's like, why would I want to go to Ecuador to do two or three months <laughs> where I fall out of a truck when I can do that in front of my house? Yeah, he's like, so, and then he he approaches uh, Eastwood. Eastwood says no. He approaches Paul Newman. Paul Newman says no. Uh, Nick Nolte tries out for it, but they don't give it to Nick Nolte. He thinks about Warren Oates. Warren Oates, who had just done a lot of Peckinpah movies, but the studio's like Warren Oates isn't a big enough name. But then the studio Universal's like, hey, you know, Jaws just came out. You yeah. worked with Scheider on French Connections. Scheider did great in Jaws. People know him. We'll agree to do this project with you because we're not very enthusiastic about it if you use Scheider. But then Freakin's like, well, I've kind of burned a bridge with Scheider because we, uh, Scheider wanted a part in uh, The Exorcist as one yeah. of the priests. I think he wanted to play 
uh, the main priest. He wanted to play you. Uh, was it Karras? Or no, that, no, that's Vasilios. Uh, but yeah, he the, wanted to play the young priest. Like, yeah, <laughs> next to Max von Sydow. But uh, William Blank, Blatty, Blatty. The, the author of uh, The Exorcist, specifically went against. He said, I don't want him cast. And it, it was Blatty who said no to Scheider. So then freaking had to go tell Scheider no, thank you. So they hadn't talked since then. So they... Co- so freaking isn't really warm to the idea of having Scheider come on board because he's kind of upset that these are now he's getting third, fourth, fifth, sixth choices of these people, but he gets Scheider. Okay, I like Scheider. He can do it, but... And he realizes quickly, he's like, you know, if I just acquiesced to McQueen, he said, he, you know, he's quoted saying like a week later, you know, I realize what it meant to have a close-up of McQueen on, on, on the screen and what I could have had if I just, you know, kind of gave into McQueen's will if I... Uh, agreed to have his wife have a part if I agreed to have him have an AP or if McQueen even said his third McQueen's thing was like will you shoot it in the states at least and you know so you know I think that he now realized that this movie needed stars to succeed and he didn't have really stars in it uh, I mean, he had Scheider, which was big, but then yeah, having this other cast in America. Scheider was in, a, you know, the biggest movie of you know all time by you know a previous to Star Wars. Yeah, but it's such it an also art like kind of. But Jaws was like the the shark was the star of that movie. Yeah, you know, and it was like an ensemble, and so it wasn't. Even though Scheider was in a huge movie, he didn't have the kind of star power that like McQueen had, obviously. And personally, I don't know, I. It would have been a very different movie with McQueen. And I love Scheider yeah. in it. Uh, I think maybe McQueen, maybe even having all that cast, would have been like, it would have been a very different movie. And I don't know if it would have been a movie as that I would have liked as much as I like this movie. Because it would have been about personalities. Yeah. Instead of about character. You know yeah. what I mean? I don't know, because McQueen, um, he did a movie with Dustin Hoffman a couple years before, uh, I think in 72, called Papillon. Mm-hmm. And uh, people argue that he should have been nominated for that, but since he was banging Allie McGraw, who was Rob, what's his face from the Kid Stays in the Picture? Oh yeah, that was his uh, wife at the time, Robert Evans. Um, Robert Evans. Uh, they did the getaway together, and then they became an item, and she left Robert Evans. So they say that when he came around for him getting the nomination, that Robert Evans kind of screwed him over not getting a nod. But I think this could have been a really interesting movie had McQueen been in it. And a lot of the shots when you have in Sorcerer, particularly at the beginning when they're at the oil derrick and you see that day-to-day of how dangerous the job is of putting pipes on and someone getting injured on. It's very much... I mean, they're even in the same terrain as French Guiana where Devil's Island, where Papillon takes place yeah. down there and you see, like, the the jungles and all that. I think it would have been a very interesting movie had, you know... It would have been interesting. A lot of people, you you know, you think of McQueen or an Eastwood, you don't think of emotional range right off the bat. But in Papillon, certainly McQueen shows a range he never really shows before. Where you know, when he's in solitary confinement, it's really almost you know, uh, kind of amazing to see like a, a person getting of like him or that kind of a badass getting to his breaking point in a movie or as a character. And it would have been interesting to see if he could have pulled off the the madness and despair that Scheider gets to at the end of this movie because Scheider has some really amazing acting near the end of this when yeah, he kind of, yeah. you know, when he loses it first in front of the tree and then certainly when at the end of the movie when he when he has these hallucinations and like one of my favorite sequences of all time, you know, it's just really a tour de force of how awesome Scheider is. So I don't know how it would have been. Yeah, out. you know, I just kind you of know? feel like... Because I wonder if uh, it just would have been very different. Yeah, because I wonder, I, I understand and agree with what you're saying about ego or or... or 
people about the person in the movie as opposed to the movie. But I wonder if yeah, because she just, freaking would have handled that. Yeah, but I also know? not even I'm not even talking about like behind the scenes. I mean, no, just I mean like, like yeah, like character. You know, you're looking at it, Steve McQueen. You're not looking at it as the character. Yeah. But, but I, I also, if, you know, I think in a way, you know, now that you've kind of talked about that a little bit, I think you know, I think what I like about Scheider is that. He's not bringing that to the table. Well, he's bringing a different. He's bringing uh, Sheriff Brody to the table. Yeah. So you're, you know what I mean. So he's bringing like a more mild mannered, uh, you know, predisposition. Yeah. Uh, of what you expect from Roy Scheider because of things like Jaws, to then have like. To see Sheriff Brody in that situation, yeah, how he as opposed to, to Bullet, you yeah, know what I yeah. mean, uh, or or you know whoever I can't remember his character's name in, in the Getaway, but um, so I mean, Scheider is bringing it too. He's yeah. just bringing a different persona, Doc McCoy, to it, and I think that uh, I just find that really interesting. Yeah, in, in the in this circumstance, and it's and it's it, you have you you can root for Scheider a little more, I think, or you know, it's he's kind of. Maybe you can identify with Scheider in the role like this. It's 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 a tough. You yeah, know. I mean, even though he's, they do, you know, although these are four bad guys, you do he does freaking makes an effort to have you, you know, realize that Scheider's character is not a killer. Yeah. Well, they you know were. What he, I mean, his, he he got put into a circumstance that went wrong, and so you don't necessarily hate Shider in this yeah, movie. Guilty by association. Yeah, you know, even though he's clearly doing a bad thing. Yeah, but it's they're not, robbing a church. <laughs> you know, but still, uh, you kind of, I think you like him a little bit more than uh, the others. Some of the other characters. Yeah, and yeah. and that was a uh, an outset of what, another thing that um, freaking really wanted to do is he wanted to have. Um, people who weren't clear-cut heroes of villains you kind yeah. of there's you don't really know who to root for they do, they've done bad th- like it's very much like real life everyone's done bad things but then in the situation you have to kind of try to muscle muster together something to really root for and it's it's tough in that way to be able to then have to throw that an audience and have an audience be able to carry that and yeah. you do it successfully well, you know i mean even though whatever the beliefs of terrorism is you know the terrorists are i mean it's tough to get behind a person who blows up a yeah, a bank full of people, or, or yeah, anywhere. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you to see their you know, like empathize or with whatever. Their you know, yeah, or another guy who's embezzling money, or or a hitman. You know, yeah. Uh, so then they end up having to get other people. They get Shider. They get um, this guy Amadou, who was actually the only part of the cast who um, freaking originally wanted. And they get two other guys, a Frenchman and my dad, evidently played by uh, I think his name. Is <laughs> he becomes less your dad when yeah, he shows up. To, when he shows up to the but, town. but it's just but in the, the beginning of the movie. Job. He's yeah, he's he's uh, very much so like him. I think his name is Francesco um, uh, Rabol, uh, and he always he was uh, Freakin's first choice in French Connection as one of the characters. But then there was a casting mix up, and uh, he didn't get cast. So he so freaking remembered him, and then they. They, they cast him that way and he always wanted it's funny because he always wanted to do an American Hollywood movie quote unquote but then yeah. the one Hollywood movie he does is a movie that gets filmed all around the fucking world and now in Hollywood he's like oh what the hell in different languages you know? yeah and a lot of these guys also was their first um, uh, uh, English speaking roles and the guy Amadou who plays the terrorist in the movie uh, you and I have a connection like 
we had an acting teacher at Laszlo Zabo mm-hmm. in film school who was a, uh, an actor in the French New Wave movement, friends with Truffaut and uh, Jean-Luc Godard. And I think Laszlo in his prime could have played Amadou's part perfectly. Totally. You know what I mean? He looks like him. Mean, he has that, he, his face, his hair. I mean, yeah. it's just that young, you know, the, the, the energy that Laszlo Zabo has in a lot of those French New Wave films. Yeah, Laszlo was Hungarian, even though he was, you know, part of the French New Wave, and he had a very dark... Yeah. olive Yeah, almost like Greek or Italian. He's yeah, like that yeah. t- tan skin. And uh, I think he would have done great in this. Uh, so what they end up doing is then, uh, where can we go from here like this? So so we get the cast together, and then I think it's Universal. What's his name? Lesserman, the, the head of Universal at the time. And I, f- I feel like we've brought him up before, Lou Lesserman, on the cast. But he has some business businesses in the Dominican Republic. He's like, fuck Ecuador. Why don't you shoot it in the Dominican Republic? We can probably get it done. And he freaking agrees. And at the time, Dominican Dominican Republic was like a military kind of a state. So when they get down there, this is, we talk to our friend, really, uh, Randy Jurgensen, when they get down to the film, they have to be escorted around by soldiers. It's very much like there's there's police down there, but the police are like like they almost look like Gestapo. People get disappearing off the streets, so there's very much there's a worry about everyone's uh, uh, safety while they're down there. So uh, our man Randy Jurgensen, he says he used to jog every day. Uh, and he, him and Scheider would go jogging together, and he would carry, Jurgensen would carry a 38 in his waistband just to make sure everything's okay. And he talks about a very funny scene in an interview that we had with him where they're jogging down the street, and there comes this box truck with all these guys in it with machetes, and they see the two of them, they recognize Scheider. When they put the machetes in the other side, screaming, and Jurgensen's like, oh my God, what's going to happen here? And they find out later that they were yelling in Spanish that, that they were saluting the man who killed the shark <laughs> in Jaws. And they're like, oh, you know, they recognize him from Jaws. Yeah, yeah. You know, they also, when they get down there, they, there's this stigma because um, I think some people know South America is very, very religious. Yeah. So they find out that the director of The Exorcist is coming down. They all get scared, and there's this huge fear of this super superstition, the supernatural, that they're now very scared to approach. They don't know what the movie's going to be. So there's you know there's this huge like fog of you know when they have to do the bridge scene, they have to try to do it in the Dominican Republic, but then stuff get, goes wrong, and they have to move it to Mexico. The Mexican they were they had to have the bridge in a 24-hour guard because they were worried that terror. Terrorists were going to bomb it, blow it up because they were so scared about having the director of um, The Exorcist being there because it was bad karma or, you know, like all this kind of weird stuff that you have to then deal with when you go to other cultures. So, you know, they get the cast down there and it becomes a story of like if anyone's ever seen the documentary on uh, Apocalypse Now, Hearts of Darkness, they all kind of like lose their mind down there. Like they get down there. very quickly since they're in South America, people start getting like malaria, dysentery. Uh, people are, you know, kind of like just burning out while they're down there. Uh, freaking, I guess is, is a lot of dysentery this year. Yeah. Our- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're always talking about dysentery. <laughs> in our in, in the podcast we've done this year. Yeah. Uh, what's the other one? Oh, we got uh, Predator. Did they all get yeah, sick? Yeah. They and- all got sick in Predator. Yeah. Except they all got and- sick. Raiders of the Lost Hotel. Ark. Raiders of Lost Ark got sick too. Yeah, dysentery too, because you're, you're going to these four lands and they say, don't drink the water, drink bottled water and eat out of canned foods. So they get down there and you have... We, we like to we like to mention dysentery at least one show a month. Yeah, exactly. Getting, <laughs> getting dysentery, give me to watch. Uh, but the, dysentery, give me to watch. Give me to watch up my ass. So you got when you get down there, you got a freaking who's kind of like a force to be reckoned with because he thinks he's got a vision and no one can mess with him. And then you have Scheider that's down there. Scheider's coming off of Jaws, and he thinks he, you know, I'm not saying he thinks, but he's, you know, he's a big actor at this point. So then there's this tension because they become, there's this difficulty going on. Yeah. Uh, you know, Scheider himself, they all, 
have to they all want to do their own stunts they all learn how to drive the trucks they all want to they don't want to do have stuntmen to a certain extent they all don't want to we have, also should mention that there's a beautiful small part by the great joe, joe spinell a spider. <laughs> spider yeah joe spinell is down there because joe spinell is a friend of randy jurgensen and william freakin so uh after we backtrack a second once scheider like we said he uh gets pinch pinch hold by the mob and the mob puts a contract at him out on him he goes and meets our friend randy jurgensen who comes out and lets him know like yo the mob's looking to get you you got to get out of here and randy gives him this thing he goes uh the line is uh, uh, take a train down to baltimore meet a guy named nat glick and he's going to send you somewhere and then he's like where am i going he's like i don't know and he's like i, I don't want to know and it becomes very pro- profound like you know i don't even want to know yeah uh, randy's let me telling, ask you do they dub randy because i mean clearly it's adr but it doesn't sound like his voice. No, yeah, I know. It, I, it, he's got a different voice from back. Because you know, he's, well, you look, he's in his 80s now. Yeah, yeah. So and this is 40 years ago. So he's kind of got a different. It doesn't even sound like an accent or anything. Yeah, yeah. He's sound like, did they dub his voice? Yeah, because he sounds, because I'm not, I think it's because we're so used to his voice now. Yeah. You know, if you go back and watch like Vigilante or uh, French Connection that he has speaking roles and you see that he it The other like weird a, thing about the be- the prologue is. Shiner looks like he's wearing like a prosthetic nose piece over his the bridge of his nose. Yeah, because I think he he breaks his nose in the car crash at the beginning, supposedly, because he gets all banged up. But it's up, even before so, that. Oh, you think he's wearing some it's sort like, of... It's like, you know how... Like, yeah, the bridge you of your watch, nose. You it's like, the there's, like a, there's an indent in between the eyebrow and yeah. the nose. And like his when he's driving, like it's, it's like straight up. That it, And it's not like that when he gets to the... I don't know. I yeah, maybe it's just makeup or something, or, or something. Like you know, that. it looks like he's wearing a prosthetic piece. I mean, they have a part there, Elizabeth, New Jersey. The, the the scene where they have it's 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 very subversive because you have the people getting married. The woman, the girl has a black eye. Yeah, yeah. that's real fucked up. And then there's the scene where they 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 drive away, but they get into a fight and there's a car crash. They couldn't get the car crash. They tried it like twelve or fifteen times, and they had to bring a specialist in to flip the car over. And I love the shot of Scheider making it away and trying to walk down the street, you know, and he's falling because his ankle's giving out and he's trying to get away. I love all that. And then he goes and meets Randy, and then Randy talks about how he's friends with Freak, and that has become an in-joke between the two of them. Anytime they're in like a, a jam or a scrape, Jurgensen and and, um, William Freakin will say to each other, hey, I want you to go find a train to Baltimore, get a guy named Nat Glick, and then Randy, when he was trying to sell his book, he asked uh freaking for help and he said to freaking and please don't tell me to go to baltimore to find that click <laughs> you know that's become a thing between the two of them so randy sends scheider down to he doesn't know where he's going he sends him to this hellhole of a place in in, in yeah. chile and that's how he gets down I there say, like this is and one of those Spinell. this is one of these this is one of those movies like i think we talked about with blade runner like there's just like this movie is full of atmosphere yeah and this is. especially when they get to this town and you notice, like, the, the you know, uh, not only is Scheider conflicted about being down there, he's having nightmares of what's happened. And they're doing a cutaway. It's very freaky to me. It, there's just, like, I don't know where, because it's not in the movie, but there's, like, a like a jail cell window with yeah. cobwebs. It's almost very much to me like Angel Heart. You know, when Mickey Rourke is having these <laughs> yeah, images yeah. and there's images in it where you're like, where the hell is that from in the movie? <laughs> I can, you know? I can, it feels like Angel Heart. You know, and there's, like, a movie. scream, like, ah! You know, there's definitely like you know, the sound sweaty. yeah and there's especially near the end of it when the tension gets racked up and all that and we haven't even got into tangerine dream yet but all the sound so 
to move this ahead, we get the, uh, you know, we said the oil, you know, they're in this town. There's nothing to do. There's a great uh, shot at the, when they're sitting in the bar. They have barely nothing to eat. And there's this old Coca-Cola mural on the wall that was a Coca-Cola ad. And there's a girl, like, on the beach from the 40s that's, and the, you know, the paint's fading. So they're just sitting there, like, fantasizing about her, looking at her, like, this, you know, it's a painted woman's ass from the in a 40s swimsuit and they're just you know it's just like the boredom so I, down there so I thought they were fantasizing about, about the Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola. <laughs> yeah having some Coca-Cola <laughs> and then like the Federales come in they grab they grab um Scheider and they realize they're like you know you're, you're the, the, the Federales like you're born in Mexico but you can't speak uh, Mexican he's like yeah and they bring him and then you know they, they, they shake him down take all his money and then you realize that it costs like uh like 2,000 pesos to get out of the country and the Palestinian terrorist is like, I've only, I've only been able to save less than 100 pesos this year by yeah, working yeah. at the oil derrick. So you can realize like the, the madness of trying to, and you have Spinell, our, our man, he's working at the airport with Roy Scheider and he's saying like, don't even try getting on an airplane. They won't be able to do it. Uh, Spinell was down there because he was friends with everybody. So he got onto the movie at the time. He had married and he was seeing a porn star. So he was having a lot of issues in his life with drugs and other things. So he figured the to, everything would be fixed by marrying the girl and he brought her down there and then she was causing problems. So sh- freaking told free, uh, our man Randy Jerkinson, like, yo, you got to sort this out. Tell Spinell that he has to send this girl back. So Randy had to have the conversation with Spinell about this. And it's sad because Smell, Spinell has a very little part. And if you blink, you'll miss him. Yeah. But we know him because we love, God bless, another patron saint of our podcast, Joe Spinell. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, he has a very little role and he's still thin Joe Spinell, you know, because he hasn't <laughs> put the weight on that we see he has a maniac and then into the 80s. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he's so, also coming off of, at that point, he's Godfather 2, right? He's coming off of Godfather 2, Rocky. Yeah. And maybe Rocky taxi driver. Too. Oh yeah, he's in Taxi Driver, the beginning of Taxi Driver, which is seventy six. So yeah. yeah, he's he's so he's he's down there for a minute. So uh, you know, and then Randy talks about whether well, they're down there, just all like I said, the craziness that they were staying in this hotel that used to be a convent that had an elevator that they couldn't use because it would stop, the electricity would go off, so there was no running water. So there's and then trying to cut their way into the jungle. How are they going to get these trucks in the jungle? And freaking's like, we're going to do it. So they're like helicoptering these trucks into the jungle. And then, you know, they can't leave the equipment there every day. So they have to set up and they have to break down and bring the equipment back. So people are coming and going. They lose the DP because the DP, when they, they, they shoot all the prologue and some of the stuff, they go back to LA to screen it. All the prologue stuff looks great. But then when they look at the stuff in the jungle, it's underexposed. It's not right. So freaking gets into an argument with the DP. They go their separate ways. They bring a new DP in, and he changes up the stock film stock and lenses, and they get what they want by having a little better of exposure for, yeah. down there in the jungle. And uh, so as our story propels, they the, the oil company has an explosion, kills a bunch of people. The oil, oil company really doesn't care. You have a little shades of the book where they're talking about, like, uh, you know, we can't blame the, uh, you know, we'll blame the people for the incompetence. It wasn't our fault. We'll just say it was the workers for the insurance write-off. And we, you know, they say they're going to pay eight thousand pesos to find some drivers. They know, you know, to, to bring this volatile nitroglycerin across. So they end up picking up. They pick four drivers. Uh, one of them isn't the Francesco Rabal, my dad, the hitman. It's another guy, a German. I think his name is Smirnov, who in the book sabotages what, the first truck. He takes the uh, the a fluid out of one of the um, shock absorbers and half because he figures that it'll after 50 miles it'll seize they'll blow up and then that means the backup guys will have to go yeah you know so they he sabotages the truck in the book and then halfway through they realize the thing goes on fire and they have to put water in it you know so you realize that there is sabotage going on as well so you have 
that translates to the sorcerer because when they're about ready to go, that guy doesn't show up and uh, our guy Amadou runs and he's the other guy's been killed and by the hitman who takes his place with Roy Scheider, you know, to get into the truck because they need, they need a driver. So he slits his throat or whatever it is. So they take the, they build the trucks and like I said, in, in Wages of Fear in the book, they give them new trucks in this movie, Sorcerer, they just give them old trucks that they completely refurbish A-Team style. They have that yeah, montage yeah. of them fixing the trucks up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they paint the stuff on it. They name one truck Lazarus, which is Lazaro, uh, which is one they actually saw on a truck in Ecuador uh, after Lazarus, the guy who um, died and Jesus resurrected. And the other one they, they named Sorcerer. And getting into the title of the movie... Um, the title? The title of the movie is uh goes into the idea here of fate uh and freakins this is like probably one of the most part, parts of the cast where it's why he named the movie sorcerer and why it flopped and whatever and he looked at sorcerer he said he thinks that like i'll quote him but he thinks that like you know fate is we're our stuff isn't predetermined and whatever you do, fate can fuck you. And that was an example of what the name Sorcerer is. So to quote Freakin, he says, quote, Sorcerer is an evil wizard. In this case, the evil wizard is fate. The fact that someone can walk out of their front door and a hurricane can take them away, an earthquake or something fall through the roof. And the idea we don't really have control over our own fates, neither in, neither our births nor our deaths. It's something that has haunted me, uh, Freakin, since I was intelligent enough to contemplate something like that. I wasn't prepared for my success or failure. I felt uh, buffered by fate without any control over my destiny. And that's one of the themes of Sorcerer. Sorcerer, no matter how much you struggle, you'll get blown up. It's about revenge, vengeance, betrayal. This is how I felt about life, freaking did. Life is filled with betrayal, false promises. Fate is waiting around the corner to kick you in the ass. And that's basically his idea of, he was originally going to call this movie Ball Buster, but the the studio's like, what the hell? You can't call it a movie Ballbuster. That's that was the working title. So he, when he painted the name of Sorcerer on the truck, that became, oh, I'll call it Sorcerer. And it is a weird. And it's also kind of inspired by the Miles Davis album. Yeah, there's a Miles Davis album as well. He was listening to called Sorcerer that he was he was fond of at the time. And I think the correlation of painting that on the truck and then having the album, he's like, oh, we'll call it Sorcerer as one of these mixed titles. I mean, I'm sure we can come up with a half a dozen other names of movies that you're like, what the hell is the title? Of? Like Reservoir Dogs. What the fuck does Reservoir Dogs have to do with? Yeah, yeah. You know, but it's one of these things where because of the time, you had audiences thinking that they're going to go, you know, after the exorcist, Sorcerer has something to do with evil or horror or whatever. So it's almost misrepresented in the theater. Yeah. So that's why he, he names it as he names it. So they have these two trucks that go off and we start this journey down this, 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 path into sorry into uh insanity between these these four guys and these two trucks where you start having this montage of them driving along the road and stuff like that uh they have to navigate these turns and and uh tension starts to build like when they have to like go around like a 90 degree angle then they have to go out like on a wooden embankment to do it and then like they crack through and that's something that's kept from the uh, original wages of fear movie and then like the next scene is they have to uh do something else and then for me, when the movie really starts, my favorite part for the movie is when it starts raining and they get this tropical storm and they're going through the thing and they, they get to a fork in the road and they don't know which way to go. And uh, Roy Scheider gets out of the truck with the other guy, uh, uh, the hitman, and they start. To, there's a guy walking by, like a, an indigenous person. They go, which way is to whichever town? Katmandu. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and in Spanish, the guy's like, only death is there. 
And then he's like, you know, este loco. You know, he's like, he's crazy. So Roy Scheider wants to go right. And then the other truck comes up to him behind him. And he's like, you're going, and the French guy's like, you're going the wrong way. He's like, we can't go this way. And it, they had the struggle. He's like, we're going to follow the map. We're going to follow the map. So then Schreider begrudgingly, uh, begrudgingly agrees. And then the, the next shot is like they're going down this hill. They're like on like almost a 90 degree angle in this truck in the mud. And they get down and stop and they get out of the truck. And the truck's, like I said, on a 90 degree angle parked. And they look at this dilapidated bridge. And you have this great... Uh, sound that they use in the movie which they say the sound effect was used a lot on The Outer Limits this weird I don't even know how to explain it it's like this oh like it's just really freaky and like Shider's like we went the wrong way and like Shider's starting to go nuts and I love Shider gets out of the truck in the storm he starts to go try to inspect the bridge the hitman gets out and, and he starts trying to put his jacket on and if you don't realize he stops and I love it. Like he's watching Scheider and you cut back to him and he hasn't even finished putting his jacket on because he's just like, oh my God. He's like, we're never going to be able to do this. So he tries to run and Scheider's like, where are you going? He tries like pulling him. He's like, yeah, we got to yeah. go. And then, you know, it starts this thing where we're going to do it. You're going to try. You're going to guide me. And then this whole perilous thing where Scheider tries to get his truck. Um, Lazarus. I mean, it is fucking shocking. You know, and, to and watch. yeah, and it's like they did and uh, freaking talks about like there was no CGI. This was all done practically. They they built a bridge over over a river that was like a fifteen foot deep river in the Dominican Republic. It took them three months to build this river, this look to look like a dilapidated like wooden uh, rope bridge, but it's really built by hydraulics and things so that the, it you know, so it can creak and, but it'll be relatively safe. But then as soon as they started doing it, the river started to drop and. In, in, in water and they're like this has never happened it's dropping inches and then like by the time they were done ready to film there was like only an inch left in the riverbed and they're like we can't shoot here this is ridiculous so they had to suddenly try to scout other locations they found another place in mexico they had to take the bridge apart bring it there put it there and then that water started to drop on that bridge and like what the hell is going on it's like well we have to do it now so by the end of it like the 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 i think the river there there is like only like three or four inches deep which you can't really tell in the movie yeah but it was like bright day so they had to use all these tricks like you know they had to use like uh fans they had a helicopter they had like uh sprinklers to have to start this to have this monsoon out there and you have these images which i think are like the most iconic of the movie of the tr the first truck trying to go over and you know it's it's on this iconic it, it, i mean it's on this really precarious angle you don't think they're going to make it yeah you and, imagine it's going to fucking fall over the side and of the... evidently this happened quite a bit uh, you know with Scheider and the the principal actors in the truck the truck would make take a header fall into the river and they'd have to pick the truck back up and put it back and this happened several times because it's getting almost like on a 67 degree <laughs> angle yeah, so yeah. Scheider's truck makes it and then you see Scheider drive away he's like we're sitting on double shares there's no way those fuckers are going to do and you get to the the next truck, which is Sorcerer, which is the truck that is the uh, the truck on the cover of the movie, and you have them in the now you, you you cut to there on the middle of the bridge. You don't need to have them even coming up. Yeah, and they're trying to get across, and there's this really suspense where the truck is like even more going like eighty degrees. You know, it's almost like almost on its side, and and then. Uh, uh, the Palestinian terrorist falls through and he's holding, he's pulling up and he's telling the guy to stop and he's not listening. He finally stops. And he's like, are you okay? I'm okay. And then like this fucking uh, fallen tree comes down the river and crushes them and they, you know, they all get, and then they have yeah, to get yeah. machetes out in a winch and it's just, you know, with all this crazy, oh, in the background, it's just like, it's like, and you, and you really don't know if they're going to make it. And it's just, it's so nail biting. And then they finally make it. And then the next shot is, you know, it's, it's, it's nice out. They get there, they, they're going down the road, and suddenly this huge tree, one of these, like, uh, you know, the tropical rainforest trees, 
that are like, you know, 50 feet in circumference is falling in the side and down in the middle. And they're like, you know, and that's when Shatter has his first breakdown where he's like, yeah. you know, I love that where he's just, he doesn't know what he's going to do. The, the uh, hitman starts laughing. He's got a, I think he's got a laugh that, that rivals Vincent Price from Thriller. And he's like, you know, we don't know what we're gonna do. And Chatter's like, we're gonna, we're gonna cut our way around. And the machete's like talking madness. He's like, what are you talking about? And then the other guys come up, and the Palestinians like, oh, I can blow that up. And they end up blowing it up. And they had to bring some guy in. They couldn't blow it up right, freaking. So they brought some dude, Marvin the Torch, who was like was an archivist. <laughs> yeah, they brought him, and he he realized how to, he blew it up in one take. You know what I mean? And they they uh, they blow the thing up, and that's a great scene. They make this kind of MacGyverish kind of a uh, which they do in the original movie. Wages of fear. They have to blow a, a big rock out of the the uh, the way in the in the original movie. They blow this tree trunk up, and they're able to get through. And then the next scene is that truck um, uh, sorcerer is driving. And what I noticed, I've always found it so freaky. The two trucks, they're both M211s, uh, military trucks. They're the same truck, but they just have different front ends. Yeah. And the front end on the sorcerer which is the, the truck on the cover of the movie, has like a weird grill that looks like a mouth. And yeah, it's yeah. really freaky looking. It has a big hood and eyes. And to me, in the first shot of the movie where it says Sorcerer, you see this weird, it almost looks like out of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. One of these like stone carvings of, a, of something you'd see like in the, in the jungle when Indy's looking for the fucking idol. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to me, that carving almost looks like the front of the truck. Like there's a similarity there. And even the inserts of the the uh, nitroglycerin uh, big crates in the back of the truck look to me like inserts from Raiders of the Lost Ark, like you're going to see like Nazi symbols being burned <laughs> away. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So uh, what, then you have this really touching scene where uh, we had this expo exposition at the beginning of the movie when uh, the Frenchman's given this watch by his wife and they talk about the scene of she's talking about, again, Algiers, the movie we referenced before, this story about this soldier who has this dilemma where he's about to tell these his infantry to fire and if he fires, he sees across the way there's going to be this woman walking by. She's going to get killed and he realizes in that instance he had, he had her fate in his hands but he had to fire and he fires and the wife is telling the Frenchman as he's getting dressed and he goes, oh, he's just another soldier. And the woman goes, no, he's not. No one is just anybody. You know, everyone is an individual. And that becomes this big theme that Shied, uh, freaking as well as a lot of the critics say is, is not beat into you, but that's the theme of the movie, that n everybody is somebody. Yeah. And so we have this part here where they got past the, 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 the trunk, they're driving along, and they're getting along, and he's talking to him about this watch, and he's like, you know, it's a nice watch. My wife gave this to me the last day I saw her. Right now it's, uh, you know, 10 to noon in France, and that their tire pops, and they go over, and it blows up. It's real freaky. It comes out of left yeah. field for me. I never saw it coming when I was five. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. And then you see, like, again, like we said in the first movie, you see, like, Scheider and them, they're probably putting water into the... Uh, into the uh, what do you call that again I can't remember it from Christine radiator. the radiator and they see the explosion and uh, they drive up on the explosion there's like nothing left you know they get out and I love in this movie the twist is instead of having to go through the crater with the oil is that they the explosion must have gotten this band of federales these these contras to come down and they are held up at gunpoint in this, and it and it slowly es like you know it descends there where they're they're talking in Spanish again. They don't realize the hitman speaks Spanish, and they're like you know we don't shoot at the truck. We're gonna, you know we're gonna uh, we'll shoot him in the road. Then they're speaking to English like don't worry, senor. You know we, we don't want to hurt you. We just want the supplies in the truck. And then he says to his friend in Spanish like you know uh, we'll do them both in the road. And, and then his friend's like well who's gonna drive the truck? And he's like well you're a good driver. Don't worry. You know, and we realize the hitman has a gun. 
So the hitman, he shoots a god of the guys. Shider takes one of them out, but the hitman is shot and he falls out of the truck. And Shider is about to leave. And, you know, because now madness is set in, but Shider's like, oh shit, he's still here and I should save him, you know? So he picks his friends up, puts them into the, to the truck, and they go on their way. And then it enters into this crazy kind of uh, sequence, which is like one of my favorite. Uh, moments in cinema or sequences of all time where it's like he's trying to keep this guy alive uh it's so freaky looking it's like they've entered into hell at this point yeah you have like they shot this in new mexico in this weird area in new mexico where that has these natural looking things and they Somewhere wanted to stone stone formations it's very it reminds me of like the end of the beyond or the russian movie stalker or yeah. those parts of like altered states that are reminds yeah, me yeah it's of just too. so they wanted it's to, very surreal yeah and, and they wanted it to look nothing like the rest of the movie so far i mean the location wise and it's so freaky because this guy is like he's screaming in pain he's 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 laying on the floorboard of the truck and his legs are hanging out of the truck he's bleeding out uh his makeup is the same color as the floor of the truck he's like a green gray uh shiders like a zombie at this point shiders like what are you gonna do and he's like i'm going to go to managua we're going to get laid he's like come on two whores best whore managua and then he's like and then the guys you have to do it for me and like he's bleeding out and then shider starts like talking to himself and there's like this like kind of like he starts hearing laughter yeah and he starts thinking about what happened to him and there's flashbacks there's a scene they cut out of the movie that they show a shot of of like the two of them bonding where like they're they're trying to show the guy how to drive the hitman and they go off like an embankment and Shatter has to grab him to, to steady the truck they use a shot there there's a shot that's not used of like the the frenchman's watch with blood coming over it all this kind of stuff and then you know, like Shatter like builds up this kind of like it hits like this this climax and Shatter starts hearing this laughter and he stops the truck and he looks down at the guy. The guy's dead, but he's still hearing his laughter. Shatter gets out of the truck and he's he's still hearing this laughter. He's going crazy. He doesn't know what to do. So he's like, he grabs the dead body and he just drags it away from the truck. And for me, it's like one of the best moments in cinema. Like it was such a surprise for me seeing like the truck just runs out of gas. Yeah. And you're like, fuck. And Shatter runs back in and he like looks and it's like, he's like, it's like 216.7 miles and he has to go 218. And he like he's trying to start the truck, and then he's just like, and then he gets out, and he's like so shot and so like demoralized, and then like it cuts to the next scene, and it's like he comes out of the darkness like as like a zombie carrying this like a a crate to the yeah. oil. It's just so powerful for yeah, me, yeah. You know, you know, uh, you know, and then there's kind of a little epilogue too. But I mean, I just want to mention before we wrap it up. I mean, the the fact that he. Freaking decides to use Tangerine Dream is kind of a big deal. Yes, because um, it's their first. It's their first movie score. It's their first movie score. I mean, he's coming off of The Exorcist, where he uh, scrapped a score that Lalo Schifrin had written. The and, great Lalo Schifrin. Yeah, in uh, and then decided to use basically pre-established pieces like a yeah. mixtape. Yeah, and cut the movie to that, and then of course he brings in. Uh, Mike Oldfield's tubular bells as kind of like the main theme. And then that is what influences Goblin to do uh, Deep Red score. And well, then, there's elements. And of- also uh, Carpenter's Halloween becomes uh, kind of inspired by that. But Carpenter has stated, and he states in my book, Scored to Death Conversations with <laughs> some of our greatest composers, that um, 
he loves the Sorcerer score. It's one yeah. of his favorite scores of all time. And, it, you know, so by... Um, and he was extremely influenced for Halloween by the fact that they used... That Friedkin decided to use Sorcerer. And kind of or what... Tangerine Dream for Sorcerer. Yeah, uh, yeah, use Tangerine Dream for Sorcerer. And kind of what's interesting when you watch it now and the music that Tangerine Dream created for the movie is kind of great in that synth 70s, like analog synth fucking awesome way. But there's actually very little of it. I know. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, there's it's, a lot of sound effects. There's a couple. There's, they use a Charlie Parker song at the end. Uh, for me, uh, I noticed some of like the synths is similar to, a little bit to like Goblin's Dawn of the Dead score. You know, when the, they're in yeah, the yeah. bottom of the um, uh, the low-income housing projects and they find the zombies in the bottom. That has a little element of that. But for me... There's a scene in Sorcerer where they're up in the helicopter and they they're having a look at the at the at the oil derrick on fire and they're going over the mountains and they reveal and there's this weird aerial there's like a drone yeah and it's the same kind of I don't know if it's like the sound uh, of the helicopter so now every time I hear a, hear a helicopter in the distance I hear this drone and I think it's going to be that shot in Sorcerer <laughs> so anytime I hear a helicopter coming from far off yeah, yeah. I start hearing this like Wah. And I'm waiting for like, you know, like, you know, but it's, it's, yes, uh, he was invited to like a concert in the Black Forest while he was in Europe promoting Exorcist. And he saw this crazy performance in this abandoned church of Tangerine Dream for like two hours. And he said it was amazing. And he went to darkness, the darkness. The band wasn't even lit. Yeah. It was just, they were just lit by the, 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 the lights of their equipment. And he says that he went to them after he goes, I don't know what movie I'm doing next but I want you to score the movie. And they were a little standoffish because they thought at the time, like, we're not going to just score Exorcist 2. But when they got the script, they're like, oh, this is great. We'd love it. We want to see the movie. And, and uh, freaking said, no, I want you to just read the script and write a soundtrack or, or com- compose a soundtrack for me without seeing a frame of the movie. And that's what they did. So while they were down filming, he gets all these tapes. And he said it was one of the best things that ever happened to him because then they started sco- uh, cutting the movie to the soundtrack. Yeah, you know, and it's and Tangerine Dream. It's amazing because then after this, they're used a lot in the eighty. A lot. We just yeah, said yeah. last cast. We talked about something that Tangerine Dream and Christine. We said, "Oh, the scores by Tangerine Dream and uh, Firestarter." Firestarter's a lot of stuff. That's and then you get that whole that Michael Mann. I mean, it goes into that synth eighties. Yeah, like you know what I mean. Yeah, you get a lot of that, which you're now having like a retrospective with with like Drive or with sure. Uh, and there's Rob a whole, doing Maniac, the remake. There's a whole thing going on right now called synth wave. Which is a whole like subgenre of music that's become a thing, and it's kind of all inspired by this John Carpenter, uh, Tangerine Dream, Goblin, and it's become a big thing. And that's why you're hearing like, like you said, Drive, and then even in horror, it's making a big comeback with things like uh, It Follows. Yeah, yeah, and stuff like. Or that. even it does to a certain extent like Stranger Things, isn't that their theme? Kind yeah, of, you Stranger know? Things definitely comes you know? from. And that. it all kind of you can probably plot it to this movie, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think. Friedkin's decision to use tubular bells kind of changed the way people thought about uh, music, especially for horror. But then to kind of hire a band, even though Argento did it with Goblin, but hire like this like synth progressive band to score stuff. Um, it's like forward thinking at the time. Yeah, it you really know, was. You hadn't seen it. And yet. like I said, like Carpenter says, you know, of course I was inspired by tubular bells, but but even more so I was inspired by... Friedkin's decision to use uh, Tangerine Dream to score Sorcerer. Yeah. And so it's a great score. I mean, and it's also, it's a pretty 
it's not hard to find, but you can find it, but it's pretty sought after for on vinyl. Yeah, I have the vinyl and it's weird because I was listening to it on the way to your house to do this and it's kind of, not all the cues on it are recognizable to the movie. There's only yeah, like one yeah. or two themes. Because there's so little yeah. actual music. You know, there's in there the and, the, and the other stuff that's in there, it's not really on the soundtrack. I don't know if it's one of those things. They didn't put the cuts on. I don't know why, but it becomes a a very groundbreaking or landmark for scoring there. So to kind of wrap this up, then we have this little uh, coda in the movie where Scheider, he got past everything. They're handing him the check. You know, everybody's, everything's fine to go. There's a French, the Frenchman asked the other guy to the oil guy to mail a letter to his wife. He's like, oh, can you mail this for me? And it's the French guy's letter. You didn't, he's like, you didn't even fucking write mail a letter, you know? <laughs> and then it's kind of like, they say to him like, um, you know, who knows in two months if we're ever, even still be here. You know, and uh, like the oil derrick will close down in two months if the company is not into it. And it's like, then Shider's like this realization with Shider. It's like, fuck, this is all for nothing. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's such like a, oh my God, ending. And then, he, and then the, 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 the oil man even says to him, like, why don't you go to Managua and have a good time? And then Shider looks at him and goes, shit, I can't go to Managua now. And it's so telling that because they were talking about that in the truck and the madness. He's like, I can never go to Managua now because it, it means so much to me. And then there's this. They uh, freaking does this great pull into Scheider's faces. He's thinking about everything. And he has a chance to leave, but he says, hey, you know, they're like, the, the plane's waiting for you. And he's like, can I hang out for a minute? And just, because this Charlie Parker song comes on, he gets up to dance with this woman in the bar. And then outside, the taxi pulls up, because you saw a plane go over in the shop before, out gets out the um, hitman or the, the mobster from the beginning of the movie. And then out gets out uh, our man, Randy Jurgensen. He walks in the frame into a close-up, and then that's the end of the movie. They walk into the bar as to mean that even Roy Scheider can't escape the fate that has beset yeah. him. It's also know. an interesting thing at the end of that movie. And I don't know if it's intentional, but like the color scheme in the bar, like it's just, it almost seems like it's black and white. Yeah. But yet it's like, it's but like, obviously you can see the skin tones, but like, like everybody's sepia. wearing black. I mean, everybody's wearing gray. Even the beer bottles, when they put them on the table, aren't green. They're like gray glass. And I don't know if they did that in post or what, but it's very kind of weird. And <laughs> I was watching it this time around, and I was like, this is very strange. Like, it almost seems like it's a black and white scene, but clearly it's it's shot in color. Yeah, it's it's so weird. And then uh, Randy talks about there was speculation if, if the movie ever did a hit to actually have a sequel. And a sequel be about Scheider being on the run from these, these people. If You know, that was just talks that never got anywhere because the movie ended up tanking you know uh and you know like we said go check out the interviews we did with randy jurgensen that we have in our back catalog yeah. because he informs a lot about this and other stories anecdotes that we didn't get to here and our um and uh, then the movie ends up coming out and our, it just our cruising podcast in our cruising podcast that we talk directly to, about randy and stuff like that and the movie comes out and it just ends up tanking because nobody's into it star wars came out a month before people want to see star wars star wars is in the chinese theater they have an obligation to take star wars out to put sorcerer in they put sorcerer in it's doing terrible they pull sorcerer put star wars back in and it becomes this thing where we're talking about they're putting lobby cards up saying like this isn't a supernatural movie uh the movie isn't a foreign movie we believe believe us the movies you know <laughs> and then they they try to cut it and name it wages of fear to go overseas and it becomes this movie that after the movie's done and freaking came back to the States, he's, he's diagnosed with malaria. So he kind of gets mad and he goes to France to live because he's so disenchanted with Hollywood and he ends up uh, surviving his or, or uh, healing his malaria there. And uh, the movie just kind of tanks his career for a couple of years and it becomes this movie that lives on VHS and and people hammer it at the time critics. I think Robert Ebert's the only one who gives it a good review back Roger, then. Right. Roger Ebert. 
And it goes on, as, as I said, Randy Jurgensen's told me that like people come up to him, Sidley Lumet, when he worked with him on Homicide Life in the Street, that TV show, he says that this is Freakin's best movie. Yeah, Martin yeah. Scorsese says this is Freakin's best movie. Slowly but surely, this movie has this revitalization. Stephen King calls it like his, his favorite. Yeah, his favorite movie. It's on his lists and stuff. I personally think it is my favorite movie of William Freakin's, although I like it. Other, I love Cruising. I love French Connection. I love Exorcist. I, I, because of the affinity I have, I think this is my favorite movie of his. And it has now in the past couple of years had this great resurgence in popularity. Now people are going back and re-reviewing it and saying, oh, yeah, it was ahead of yeah, its time. Yeah, now it has like an 80%. Yeah, liking and tomatoes, and it's, but it's back now, in the day, yeah, it has like it's a horrible one percent. <laughs> yeah, because at the time it was like audiences shifted; they went back to they didn't, you know, it, it kind of closed the era out on the seventies kind of Hollywood filmmakers doing things, the extravagant movies that were flopping from everybody, and also this running the risk of uh, of health and injury to the point where people were actually getting killed. When it comes to John Landis on the uh, set of the Twilight Zone, so it was like a whole different era. Now you can look back and say, oh, you know, freaking almost causes his forgotten film because now yeah. you know, people, he's finally getting recognition for it. But we talked about last week with John Carpenter and his failure with Christine. You can't really beg on or peg these movies to be, hopefully they'll be good in 20 years. You know, that kind of ruins your career. Yeah. Morally kills you then. So it's, it, it's, it's, I love the movie. This is like one of my favorite movies of all time, as I said, but it's, it's hard to see that the movie, it came out terrible. It was so hard to get. Back even when we were in college, I couldn't get a copy of it. And I finally got a copy when we watched it. And it was like a VHS shitty copy. Yeah. It only came on Blu-ray a couple of years ago and it and it, it has and they it was remastered. only like in conjunction with his autobiography. Yeah. Autobiography. Because he had to sue for, since Paramount and uh, um and Universal at the time did a partner dual partnership, nobody knew who owned the rights. So he had to sue for the film and the intellectual rights. Because he wanted to get the movie re-released, also to get it out to, to scholar, to li- to college libraries, or other people for people to be able to just view it, because yeah. it was just in this mire. So he sued the two companies, and then out of the lawsuit, he attained the rights, the intellectual property, then to be able to re-release it on Blu-ray. And, the, and there's not even a director's cut on Blu-ray. They just they did a really great job with the picture and the soundtrack. It's now 5.1, uh, or I'm sorry, even DTS. So that's great. But yeah. there's no extra features. There's nothing. You think they'd be able to put a little more bells and whistles on it, which sucks. Or even a commentary would have been nice. Yeah, you know. And, and at the time, he was going around saying there would be all that kind of stuff, which kind of stinks. And he even he he went to a live performance of Tangerine Dream with the original lineup in France in 2014, and they performed the entire soundtrack. And they said they were going to release that on DVD or CD. And I never heard if that ever got released. So, yeah. you know, I I attended a a Q and A, a screening of this movie in 2013. And he did a Q&A afterward that we can put a link in. Then on my old website, I, I put a link. I, I transcribed. And, and a lot of the stuff he talks about ends up being on Wikipedia. They cite the, the Q&A that I transcribed for knowledge of what he's talking about. So you can read that if you're interested in this. We'll put a little extras. But for me, it's just a really, you know, it's a huge topic that I can go on for hours about. You know, and and it's it's. Unfortunately, we don't have. Yeah, that we're, time. yeah, we're out of we're out of time because son's up. My mom or your mom's upstairs <laughs> cooking, getting ready, putting Lego Lego waffles in the oven. I can smell the Lego waffles, and the Folgers Crystals coffee. Uh, but I love this movie, and it is an odd choice for a sleepover. But it's one of these movies where it's it's like heavily nostalgic for me. This is like one of the my favorite sleepover memories or growing up watching this. You know, and this is very rooted in my childhood. This movie, and I'm actually glad that it is getting its due now. Yeah, and it isn't this forgotten movie that people are like. You know, it was okay, but I yeah, well, I mean, it's good, and it's yeah. a shame when something that is worthwhile 
isn't thought of being so. Yeah, <laughs> for so time. long, and especially now, like the thing or or all. Yeah, you, yeah. You can, but it's nice when, even though it's so many years later, but that stuff finally, like people are recognizing it, and it finds an audience. Like yeah. you know, and that's really nice. It's great. So uh, yeah, I'm happy we did this. I mean, there's. Like I said, probably tons of other stuff we could have got to. We just didn't have the time. So please check it out if you've never seen this movie because it really is worth a Yeah, it's uh, worth a checking shot. out. Even sure. the original as well, The Wages of Fear. I mean, the know? 70s is arguably like the greatest decade of movies. Yeah. You know, and this, this many, a, many people would argue that. And this is a shiny example. And this example. is kind of like a diamond in the rough. Yeah, and like, like one know, of the last great gems. movies of the 70s. Uh, so, you know... Definitely something you should seek out if you can find it. Like I said, it's on Blu-ray now. It's on DVD. Probably the Blu-ray is more preferable because that's the one that had the remaster done. And uh, well, we'll include some extras in this on our website too, so you can check out. And, and then, uh, we're coming back with some holiday fun. Yeah, we'll have some holiday stuff. Yeah, yeah, we got to figure out what we're gonna do, but we we've got some ideas. <laughs> and uh, we'll be back in two weeks. And Star Wars: um, The Holiday Special yeah, Part Two. Part Two. <laughs> uh, check us out on Facebook. Check us out on Twitter. Check us out at our website. You can. Uh, Comment and leave us messages on our Facebook page. You can retweet us, comment back, and like us on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at our at our uh, own uh, homepage, uh, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Uh, Blake's got scored to death as well. That Check he's, it out. Yep, that so is I'm available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all that jazz. Yeah, uh, you could hear Carpenter talk a little bit about the score to this movie. Yeah, and, and you know, and there's a lot of six ways from Sunday and all the all. It's been very relevant. Your book as like last week with Christine and some other other horror movies that we've been talking about. Uh, and we'll, like we said, we'll be back in two weeks with another exciting uh, ushering in the holiday. We're already here. We're already Christmas already. It's so crazy. We're going to be in 2018. 2018. Where's where's yeah, I don't know where it is. It's, it's not in my back pocket. <laughs> I don't know where it is. So uh, thank you very much for listening. We hope you're liking what we're doing. Uh, come back in a couple weeks. And uh, we love you guys. Later. Later.